Hi, everyone. Before we get into the show proper, there is a very grave and serious piece of news we felt we needed to address at the top of the show. On Saturday, August 8, at around 2 a.m. Central Time, the U.S., a new story broke about Tatsuya Matsuki, the writer for Okdach, uh, being arrested for committing indecent acts uh, on a female middle school student. And this story was reported by the NHK. They reported that, according to the police, uh, the girl was walking in the Nakano ward of Tokyo on June 18th at 8 p.m. when the suspect approached her from behind while on a bicycle and touched her inappropriately. Afterward, the suspect fled the scene on the bicycle the girl went to the police who analyzed security camera footage to investigate, and then the police discovered through security footage that an hour later, a similar incident on a nearby road with a different female middle school student occurred, also involving a suspect who resembled Motsky. And so there were two women involved, two girls involved with this. And according to the police... Uh, when interrogated, Mosky told them that there was generally nothing incorrect with their accusations. So he basically admitted to it. And so things happened pretty quickly after that. Later that Saturday, on the Viz end, the next chapter countdown clock was taken out on Act Dodge's Simulpub page. And then Shoeisha uh, released an online statement that said they are taking the news very seriously and they're looking into the facts, confirming things, and they're going to deal with the matter appropriately. And then on Monday, basically, they made a statement that announced the cancellation of Octodge. The final chapter, 123, was released in the magazine. That was too late to, you know, stop the presses on that, but it was not translated, not simul-published on Viz or Manga Plus. And they both released the same statement from Shueisha uh, that reads as follows. Matsuya Tatsuya, the writer of Octodge, was arrested on August 8, 2020. The editorial department takes this situation very seriously, and after confirming the matter and discussing it with Shiro Usazaki-sensei, the artist for the series, we have come to the conclusion that it is impossible to continue with its serialization. The chapter that is in combined issue 36-37 of Weekly Shonen Jump will be the final chapter. It is extremely unfortunate to have to end a series that has received so much support from so many readers in this way. However, this decision was made because of the nature of the incident, and because Weekly Shonen Jump recognizes the weight of its social responsibility. We offer our deepest regrets and apologies to our readers. This is a difficult time for Usazaki-sensei, but the editorial department offers Usazaki-sensei our support and encouragement for future works. Information about graphic novel ones related publications and events will be announced as they are decided. And those events and publications, the what to do with them, was decided very quickly. Pretty much immediately when this statement came out, uh, Usazaki-sensei on Twitter basically removed all mention of Octodge from her profile bio and basically her bio just reads I'm a manga artist now essentially Uh, she basically seems to have completely disavowed herself from the situation and then 
in terms of what has been going on with all the other things in the works for Rock Dodge, both the English publication, international publications, and the stage play, well, essentially all of those have been canceled. On August 11th, it pretty much was confirmed by Hori Pro, who was producing the stage play, that the stage play had been canceled. And essentially, we had been seeing through like how online retailers have been responded, through like what Viz themselves did on their website, what uh, Shueisha did on their own Show and Jump website, Act Dodge's series page on the Shueisha Show and Jump website was taken down completely. And on the Viz side of things, digital volumes were completely discontinued. It was taken off the calendar. And they have reached out to recall all copies of Volume 2 that were in shipment. So I basically got like a message about that since we had Volume 2 on order. So they had basically told us, yeah, it's been recalled. It's no longer available to ship or for purchase. And they are also actively seeking to recall Volume 1s that have already been shipped or are out there now. And basically it's continued like purchase of Volume 1 digitally or like actively supporting purchases of it on physical like they still link to where you can find it but like they are actively trying to recall old copies of volume one this is happening not just in the u.s but it's also happening internationally in france italy they are also recalling basically all volumes of octage and of course in japan like everything is being recalled they are stopping the printing of the series entirely like everything is just done with the series. It's not going to be printed anymore. Like all the ones that are going to be recalled, nothing's going to be sold anymore. Though, so it's still in the Shonen Jump app. So the series is still on the Shonen Jump app, but the message that, you know, which said, oh, backfill chapters will be included as they come out, that has been removed in lieu of the statement of Act Out has been canceled. Visit the official statement for more on ShonenJump.com. And again, the volume one, which you could last week purchase, is no longer listed to purchase on the Jump Jump app or this app. It is no longer available to purchase digitally. And basically, ICV2 confirmed on August 13th that yes, this has stopped shipping and has discontinued their release of Octodge. It's not happening anymore. So basically... Act Dodge as a series just very quickly, like we are recording this in a, a week out from when this news broke. Basically within that week time, Act Dodge is completely being recalled. The series is over, like everything is done with that. But I want to make one thing very, very clear. It's very sad to see this happen to such a beloved series, but... The victims are the two young girls who were molested by Motsky. And do not get it twisted. Like, those are the victims here. It's so awful what happened to them. They were just minding their own business. They were just innocent kids that were groped by this disgusting man. And I hope they are receiving all the support from their community, family, that they can to get through this, especially since, like, to be involved in a scandal involving someone semi-famous like this only must put more pressure and anxiety on them. And I am very upset 
in Shueisha's statement that they do not directly acknowledge what happened and who the victims involved were. And I really think it was very cowardly PR to just say they are apologetic to the parties involved, but not directly say what happened, who the victims were. And I am very disappointed in that. And I think the other huge victim in this, of course, is Shiro Uzazaki-sensei, who, of course, as the artist of the series, had done, honestly, the bulk of labor on the series and making the series what it was for the past two and a half years. And to see all of her work being destroyed like this because of the horrible decision of one scumbag partner that she trusted is just so awful. And with all of the copies for purchase of Act Dodge, her debut series being recalled and unable to purchase, she has lost her source of income. And Shueisha says they are supporting her and encouraging her. I would like to see actionable support. I would like to see what to know. I would like to know what they are going to be doing, like actively to support her, not just saying, okay, you know, the door is still open for you to make something new. I want them to actually hopefully work with her and like financially support her until her next thing comes off the ground because this decision to recall the series to cancel the series it is the right one it is absolutely the right thing to do and i'm glad they did it considering that they have not done the right thing in the past uh with watsky but considering that uzazaki is an innocent party in all this that is being very unfortunately affected like her livelihood is being affected like i think that they really need to go above and beyond in supporting her like not just financially but also emotionally like helping her find new work like just in the short term and then also working with her to produce another series if she you know still wants to work with them to make series and then of course also affected are everyone internationally involved with promoting and distributing the series the team at Viz that was responsible for the simulpub and responsible for publishing the volumes. I mean, that is an, a job that has been lost, this assignment of doing Octodge. So my heart goes out to the letterer, translator, editor for the series. Uh, basically, everyone involved in the localization of the series because they basically lost a huge project they were working on. And the financial cost of having to cancel all these volumes in production of printing is probably significant. And even though Viz is a prosperous company, like it's still a big hit to have to do to have to do these massive recalls, especially in the midst of a pandemic, which just makes the shipping uh, logistics, the logistics of doing this mass cancellation a little more difficult. So I'm very, very sorry for the team at Viz having to respond to this situation and this mess. And I also extend that apologetic sorries to all the, you know, publishers of the series, you know, internationally who are having to deal with this and having to recall the series and after having put a lot of effort into localizing and producing the series over here. And so... There are so many lives that have been profoundly negatively affected by this decision. This decision of one person to just 
ruin the lives of so many people. And as a fan of Octodge, uh, it is incredibly heartbreaking to hear about this story. Especially considering the kind of story Octodge was and what it had represented in the magazine as basically the sole series starring a female protagonist with a vast cast of female characters. Like, so long, a lot of people have championed it as a very progressive series. And so now to know that the author was a total scumbag, Predator is just incredibly demoralizing. Um, and obviously I have championed Octodge for a long time and I can no longer continue to do so. It's just impossible to do so, to promote the work and to praise the work of a predator. And it's really, really a shame and it really upsets me considering how much time I had spent praising it in last year's Best of Manga episode in particular. And how much I genuinely look forward to Octodge every week. It was my favorite uh, series running. And I definitely thought about it, looked forward to it the most. And yeah, basically all those two and a half years of investment were betrayed. And I will have no regrets like with Watsky disavowing the author, never supporting their work again, and never reading their work again. But it is very painful because they were only half of what made the series what they was. And there were so many other people involved in the production and promotion of the series whose careers have been affected. I mean, again, the stage play crew, like, again, is that project was just getting off the ground and that had to be canceled. And that is just such an unfortunate thing to lose work just so immediately like that. And I... I'm going to channel like the anger and the sadness that I feel into a productive conversation. I have been talking with me Lord, a few other people. We will be producing an episode to talk about Shonen Jump and their repeated history of harboring predators and how they have responded to those situations and the general problems they have had with their sexist culture in their offices that have kind of incubated and encouraged problems like this to happen. So, you know, that conversation will come out shortly. That is in the works. And I have a lot more thoughts and a lot more, you know, remorseful mourning feelings about Octodge. But in general, I mean, I want to remind everyone that there are like real victims and livelihoods affected by this and support needs to be extended to them. They need to be foremost in your thoughts. And especially the two girls that were molested by Monske, they need the support. And I hope they get the support. I hope that Shueisha does acknowledge they have a obligation to support them. And so are, is going to work with the families to provide support to them. So it is a very sorry, unfortunate situation. And I am just hoping that Shoeisha does not walk back from this decision like they had with Shimabukuro and Watsuki and rehire this guy. I really hope that does not happen. That would be incredibly upsetting and aggravating. But as of now, from what we've seen, it seems that at least the appropriate steps have been taken. And all that is left to say is that, again, 
I offer support and condolences to everyone whose livelihoods and lives are profoundly negatively affected by all this. And there really is no good way to transition into lighter news from this, but that is why we did it as a segment on the top of the show, just to make our stance on the story, to report the story. And now we will head into, you know, our episode as usual. We're going to cover some lighter stories. We're going to have some fun talking about some new series to be excited for. And I hope that you guys enjoy the show and, you know, it lifts your spirits a little bit after, you know, this really unfortunate story that uh, has left kind of a real negative, sour taste on the entire fandom. But yeah, uh, let's get into our episode proper. This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 130. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha, and today we've got a ton of reviews of some new manga, some eclectic reviews for stuff that's not running in Viz's Shonen Jump website and app. Indeed, today we are looking at Iridori's new LGBTQ-focused doujinshi titles. The Iridori Sakura lineup, we'll be reviewing the debut lineup of that, and we'll be looking at some new simulpods, one from Mangamo, one from Denpa. We're looking at the Japan Sings 2020 manga that's running on Mangamo, and on Denpa. But we are looking at their new simulpub Lockdown Zone Level X. So we are going to be covering quite a swat of new series. Although we are going to be actually talking about one Shonen Jump simulpub that's new. And that's Ghost Reaper Girl. Which is from the creator of Rosario Vampire. They've returned with a new series on there. So we got to share some thoughts on that as well. But yeah, a lot of new series we're talking about in this one. It's going to be you know really, really eclectic. I think that it's going to be really exciting to listen to. Mm-hmm. But before we get to any of that, we do have some news to talk about. Uh, not not as much as we had on the last episode, but, you know, a, a lot of different pieces of news to talk about. And starting off, we're going to head into our serialization news. And, Lum, would you believe me if I told you there were four more new series coming to Shonen Jump I can believe you, because by the time you're listening to this, one of those will have already started. That being, of course, Tide Kubo's long-awaited Burn the Witch, the spin-off slash sequel to Bleach. It's gonna debut in issue number 38 on the 16th, so... That is exciting. I think a lot of people have been looking forward to that. What's surprising is that apparently it'll only be a four-chapter serialization. So probably only a volume in length, but hey, I mean, we kind of knew that Kubo had been developing and writing this in advance. So yeah, I mean, 
I think it's great that it's going to basically be coming out of the gate as a complete work, designed as a complete work. So I'm looking forward to reading that. But yeah, we also do have some other new series that are coming. Yeah, yeah. So besides Burn the Witch, we do have three more new series coming to Shonen Jump, starting off with uh, Honomieru Shonen uh, coming in in issue 39 from Goto Togo and Matsuda Kento. Now, Matsuda Kento, um, some of you may recognize, and that is because uh, they were the artist of of, of beloved Shonen Jump classic uh, Tokyo Shinobi Squad, possibly one of Lum's favorite manga. Isn't that right, Lum? No, <laughs> that is a blatant <laughs> lie. Uh, I definitely express a lot of disdain for it in our initial review of it. I read it from beginning to end. It got better once, you know, it got away from its probably unintended uh, nationalist and uh, xenophobic messaging in the first chapter, and then just revealed itself to be mostly just, hey, this is a battle shonen that wants to explore, like, cool concepts and cool characters, but without really much of a unifying theme to connect all that. But, you know, this is from the artist of the series, and the artist was good. Their action was good, character science was good, so... I think that the, you know, preview image from the uh, Golden Future Cup 2018 thing, you know, that looks pretty neat. So I think that, yeah, I mean, I am curious about it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, you'll have to forgive me. I, I did, I couldn't help but want to press your buttons about <laughs> that just a little bit. But, um, but yeah, so just, just, I probably should have brought this up up front. Uh, so at the time of this recording, we don't really have any info on what each of these series will be about just yet. Though, again, I'm, I'm sure by the time this episode comes out, uh, this one at least will probably have been confirmed to be picked up by Viz. I mean, it's, Really, it's 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 really safe to say uh, at this point now that Viz is pretty much picking up everything. Uh, it, I mean, it it doesn't look like there will be too many series that they'll actually like pass up on at this point. Yeah. Uh, it, it'll it'll be interesting to to like finally see like what new series they will just absolutely not touch. But whether that'll actually come, I don't know. But we'll see. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, next up we have Kokosei Kazoku. Uh, from Nakama Rio, uh, that'll be coming in issue 40. Uh, Nakama Rio, uh, I think we know as the author of uh, Isobe, Isobe Monogatari, yeah. which uh, uh, so, some of our friends who have been on the podcast, I know like uh, Joey and Maxi were, uh, uh, were really wanting to read that series and hoping maybe it would get like an English translation, but unfortunately it didn't. Uh, fun fact, I'm, I'm reading through Food Wars right now and... Uh, uh, the, the the closest we have ever gotten to any kind of English translated uh, Isobe Monogatari stuff is, uh, I think, uh, Rio drew his own version of uh, of Food Wars in Volume Thirteen of Food Wars, uh, <laughs> which was pretty good. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you've even like flipped through that series at all, you kind of have an idea of like what to expect art wise, anyway. Um, again, no, no info on like what the series will be about just yet, but, uh, assuming it'll be another gag manga, I'm very much looking forward to Viz picking up hopefully another gag manga. I'm, 
I'm really just kind of basking in this in this age of like the Viz Shona Jump app because I'm just I'm just so happy we're getting more gag manga. Honestly, like it, it really feels like you know a breath of fresh air because uh, obviously there was a point where like you know obviously Shona Jump and Viz just kind of you know they they pick up a lot of like the ep, uh, like the action heavy series so you know they usually kind of stayed away from gag manga for the longest time so like. I just I, I just wanted to take the take the time to just bask in this age of English translated gag manga. So there's that. Um, uh, last but not least, we have uh, Bokura no Ketsume from Kakazu Kazu uh, that'll be coming out in issue 41. I couldn't really find a lot of info on this particular author. It seems like they had a uh, they had a one shot back in uh, back in 2019 near the end of 2019. Uh, called the Red Pledge, uh, and that that's about all I could find out about uh this person. So I'm going to assume they're a pretty pretty new uh creator, uh you know a new rookie or whatnot. So uh it'll be interesting to see uh see what they bring to the table there. But uh, um obviously you know will one of the next times we record or whatnot, hopefully we can uh we'll find the time to sit down and. Uh, you know, talk about all these new series, I'm sure, like we always do. And uh, I, I can't wait to uh, go through some of these. I'm honestly, I'm I'm still kind of reeling from the fact that we already have another serialization round when I don't think it's been even two months since the last one. Yeah, I think there's basically been this trend of a new series debuting every month. I mean, the last one we talked about was last month, like Roboco. So, yeah, I mean... It's just going to continue. Like, these are starting up in late August, continuing into September. Like, there's been a lot of new Jump series this year. Uh, at least over a dozen. Oh, man. And I mean, like, I'm I'm sure that's because, you know, we we had Demon Slayer, Promised Everland, and Haikyuu, and Yuna and the Haunted Hot Springs all end within the same, like, time frame of each other, almost. Yeah, I mean, not only are they ending, but a lot of newer series are also getting the can, too. So there's a lot of turnover in Jump right now. And I guess we could probably transition into talking about, like, some of those series that are ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, one that uh, I know is definitely confirmed to be ending at this point is Mitama Security Spirit Busters. That'll be ending, uh, I guess it'll have ended by the time you're listening to this, actually. And so, yep, uh, that series is coming to an end. Uh, it looks like there will be a special chapter published in Jump Plus on August 31st, so I'm I'm sure Viz will probably pick that up and, again, put it in the Shona Jump app as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, Mitama Security in particular, I mean, I, I think we kind of mentioned it on the podcast a little while back that, like, we were... We were kind of thinking that it was probably going to end at some point soon. Like, we could just kind of feel it. But, uh, yeah, we basically got the confirmation here. And, again, you know, by the time this podcast is out, everybody will have already read the final chapter. So uh, there's that. Um, and I I know I've been hearing rumblings of, like, what other series will probably be ending, though I don't... Bone Collection. Yeah, people look at, like, the placeholders on manga plus for like future chapters and bone collection 
I mean, on the day that you'll probably listen to this from when we are recording, like it's it's probably going to be done if it is done, because like we are recording this like on the 6th. If Bone Collection ends on the 16th, like it seems like, uh, yeah, it'll be in two chapters from now at the time of this recording. So around chapter 15. And I could definitely buy it considering how the pacing has been. In the last mm. chapter or so, so yeah. Oh wow, that's uh, yeah. What was that? For like fourteen, fifteen chapters? Yeah, it pr- probably will end around chapter fifteen. Oh yeah, man, that's that's pretty short. Yeah, it's yeah, that's pretty pretty fast. Yeah, and beyond bone collection, I don't know if we know what else could potentially end. I mean, we got four series coming in. Uh, I mean, Baron the Witch is like a special thing, so I don't think anything would need to be removed to make place for that, but potentially one more thing could leave. So I'm curious as to what that could be. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll update everybody, you know, when we uh, when we figure that out, because, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I'm sure at least one more thing is probably going to leave pretty soon, but uh, we'll just have to see. Yeah. My guess would either be a Gravity Boys or Time Paradox. I think I would lean towards a Gravity Boys just because it is not selling as well. But I don't know. We don't know just yet. But yeah, there's a lot of turnover. Like and a lot of new series are coming in. But also, I mean, as we're seeing, things can leave pretty fast, too. So it's going to be pretty tough for things to really make it. Like, there are definitely some hits that have happened this year already, like Mashal and Undead Unluck are both doing real well. But yeah, I mean, Jump is still trying to find, like, a really stable lineup of new series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if we really have much else to say about Mitama Security in particular, other than I'm I'm going to miss it. Uh, again, it was a series that, you know, I, I wasn't like super, super into at, at the very beginning. Like I, I thought there were some gags in the first chapter that were funny, but like, it was one of those things where it's like, I need to read more, see how it, you know, progresses. But, uh, again, I, I think once it started introducing more characters, especially Shakijiro, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it got a lot better from then and, uh. You know, it, it it became it became you know one of the, one of the series I honestly kind of look forward to the most every week. It was just nice to have again a, another gag manga in the Viz version of the Shonen Jump, which is again before now was not something we really got. Now now we got a lot of them, so you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess um, I guess in terms of you know a gag uh, manga that I really like personally you know i guess roboco is gonna have to fill that empty void in my soul yeah but yeah no i'm i'm sure we'll again we'll probably dedicate an episode of mitama security at some point uh because i'm sure we could i'm sure we could find a few people to talk to talk about that for at least a little bit but uh yeah i think it ended up being quite beloved by those who read it i certainly enjoyed reading it week to week it will be missed and so, yeah, I guess we should just move on to our last bit of serialization news. Yeah. Something that might be resuming sometime is Arata the Legend from Yu Wataze. She said, or they said on their Twitter account recently, that they are working to resume Arata in the magazine, which is uh, Shonen Sunday. So, yeah. And all the series has been on hiatus 
for five years. Uh, last one on hiatus in July 2015 after an earlier 17-month hiatus. It only came back for like a month before going on hiatus again. And what Tase said last year, a year ago in July 2019, that she was going to do a new arc for the manga starting the 14th volume. But, and she has said, and they have said time and time again that they are going to, you know, resume the manga, but they have not as of yet, but they are working to it. I mean, the reason, like, that it's probably been hard for them to resume it is because, you know, they were recovering from depression. And also, like, working on Arata the Legend was, you know, notoriously very difficult for Watase because her, I mean, their original editor at Sunday was really awful. They treated them really, really poorly, even though, you know, they were established author with multiple hit series under their belts. They treated Watase like a novice and disrespected them. And that was just really unpleasant. Eventually, Watase did get like a better editor, but like that poor working experience with that editor you know, really soured them on the experience, I think, of, like, wanting to do a series like this, which is unfortunate because Watase, you know, really wanted to do an action-oriented series. But, yeah, I mean, just the poor treatment from the editor that they had, like, really, really disheartened them, it seems. So I think that it's nice, though, that they are trying to resume the series. And, you know, the recent, you know, in the last couple of years, they've been doing this remastered edition of the manga. So the 12th volume of that shipped last November. And that basically, you know, recut the original 24 volume version of the series into those like 12 new remastered volumes. So hopefully what Tase is able to resume Arata and have a much more positive experience drawing it this time around when they do resume it. Man, yeah, that God, that's awful. I honestly didn't know any of that until just now. That's that's amazingly awful, and I'm sorry she had to go through that. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate because it's like they wanted to, you know, draw this kind of shonen action thing, but you know, it's just again, this is another conversation about like how you know, female mangaka are treated by, like, male editorial staff of the manga industry. You know, the sexism involved there. So it's, like, really, really kind of aggravating, especially because, you know, when Watase was trying to draw the series, like, again, Watase created Fushigi, Yugi, and Sarah's, like, incredibly successful and popular series already, and yet they were very poorly treated by their first editor, like, constantly making them redraw scenes that you know, he didn't like, and just forcing them to do redraws until basically, you know, that was the last minute before the deadline. So, yeah. Jeez. Really overworked with Tase. It's really unfortunate. Well, hopefully she has a better experience this time around. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they identify as uh, ex-gender. So oh, I, I was making that mistake a little bit uh, earlier, but yeah, they they identify as gender, so they didn't pronouns, but yeah. Mm, there we go. Okay, my mistake. But now we can head into the licensing news, and actually, we got a lot of uh, classic Shonen Jump series licensing announcements that we're going to start Apparently, off with. Apparently, yeah. Uh, one that is like super surprising, but also the most 
hard to access will be the Captain Sabasa manga is getting a complete digital bilingual version that is going to be on the E1 book reader device. That's going to retail for about $162. It's going to be all 37 volumes, though. The deadline to pre-order it is on August 26th. It's going to come out on September 25th. So basically, this is like that kind of ebook, this iPad-like device where you can basically read an entire manga on there. Fist of the North Star was a series that was previously, you know, released in this format and later Naruto. So now they're doing this with Captain Sabasa. This is notable because this is like, I think, the first official like English translation of Captain Sabasa that's going to be put out there. So, I mean, that's very exciting and... I mean, I would be tempted to get it, but uh, it's still a little pricey. And also, yeah, I mean, to get this one device just to read this one thing is like, hmm. But still. I mean, you could you could also, I don't know how much more money would be, but if you had an E1 book reader, you would at least be able to read Fist of the North Star as well. I don't know if you are able to read multiple series on these readers i I feel like they are specific to one series i i I looked into this one time so apparently how it works is that like you you buy the reader but like you could you could basically read multiple series uh due to the fact that like these series are all like stored on like these little like like little chip things that you like insert into the oh, reader. Okay. Okay. Well, then that's a little better then if you can do more than one series. But yeah, I mean, if you have been really, really waiting for Captain Sabasa, like this is a great opportunity to read uh, it. Because I mean, who knows if anyone else would ever pick it up. I'm actually going to the E1 book reader uh, site now, and they actually have listed a lot of other series. I didn't realize you can also just buy and read on there. So yeah, it has like use for like uh, more than a couple series, which is pretty interesting. Hmm. Uh, I think they even ha- I I don't know if it's out yet, but I think they even did one for Gintama as well. You could just like have all seventy-seven volumes of Gintama on a little chip. Yeah. I don't know if that's bilingual or not, but yeah. I don't think it is, but yeah. Yeah, they actually do have quite a few different series. But the the bilingual ones are like Fist and North Star, Naruto, and now Captain Spasa. So yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I I mean, honestly, like... God, you, you, I'm telling you right now, if I, if I had any kind of extra money on me right now, I totally would buy this, but unfortunately I can't. Um... Man, maybe maybe we need to make that like a Patreon goal or something. Get us to this level of money that we could both buy ourselves E1 book readers and we could finally talk about Fist of the North Star and Captain Tsubasa, maybe. <laughs> or, I don't know. Uh, just kind of throwing stuff at the wall. But, I mean, I don't know. In general, like, I kind of wish that, like, maybe at some point... I, I don't know if this would even be possible, but, like, I kind of wish someone would just, like... I wonder if you could, like, license this translation out to another company and maybe make a release out of that. I I don't know. That that actually might be kind of difficult. Um, I don't know what the, like, logistics are in doing something like that. But it would... I would, I would love to revisit the North Star in a way that doesn't require me to buy an entire, like, ebook reader. But, I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, if these translations exist, you know, you would hope that they could just 
sell them off to someone who will just put out like individual ebooks or put them all up on a subscription site or something. So hopefully, maybe we could see that in the future. Maybe, but until then, this is if you want to read Captain Subasa in English, this is basically the way. Yeah, but thankfully, in terms of subscription sites that will be offering classic, you know, jump titles that you're going to be able to read all of us three on there, Manga Planet is come to our rescue or it's come to deliver a service by providing some series i would never thought would ever get licensed oh man yeah so let, let's talk about these so um but by the time you're listening to this podcast uh basically all the manga planet licenses we're going to be talking about are going to be available on the service at the very least you'll be able to read the first three chapters of all of these for free i think which is pretty cool yeah, I mean, heck, uh, at the time of we were recording this, basically all of them are already out, except for the last one. Yeah, yeah. Um, the first one we need to talk about, I don't think is a jump series, but I know is a series that like I've heard of and I've seen around, uh, known as Salaryman Kintaro from Hiroshi Motomiya. I believe uh, that is already out. Um, and for those who don't know what that series is about, it's basically about a retired ex-bike gang leader. Uh, who leaves his hometown where he worked as a fisherman until uh, his wife basically passes away. And uh, he's left basically as a single father going to Tokyo uh, to start his new job as a salary man. And uh, obviously with him being, you know, an ex-bike gang leader, you know, he kind of sticks out like a sore thumb at this office job. And uh, it might kind of take some getting used to, uh, you know, as far as that goes. And so, yeah, uh, again, I, I've i definitely seen the series around, but, like, I didn't really know anything about it before this was picked up for in, in English, so I'm definitely going to be reading this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like kind of GTO in a sense of, hey, we're taking, like, this kind of, you know, delinquent punk guy from the streets, and now he's going to be put in, like, more of a professional atmosphere, but he's going to bring his, like, street smarts and tactics and ways of approaching problems to his new situation so in the context of like this you know regimented very routine and mundane salaryman uh position yeah I, th I think there's a lot of potential for humor there for him to liven things up mm -hmm. i did kind of skim through the first chapter a little bit and uh now we finally know for sure that there is a series that predates beelzebub in which uh you have a badass who beats the crap out of people while while holding a toddler <laughs> which is uh which is pretty great but yeah the rest of these man i can't even believe it because uh i mean i guess this next one technically had an english translation on renta but i think they uh they stopped translating it at a certain point but now manga plans picked it back up and uh they're releasing uh sakigake otokojuku gonna be released in english as charge men's school which it's basically a literal translation very much so from uh, akira miyashita um and basically from what i remember of otokojuku uh is basically an action comedy manga set in this school full of uh delinquent type students who they're basically sent here when they cause too much trouble elsewhere and nobody else wants to take them in and they're they're basically sent to like this boot camp esque sort of military school almost, 
and it, it's just a bunch of it's just a bunch of these really uh, manly, very grown up looking teenagers uh, going through all kinds of manly stuff, like sitting in boiling vats of oil until they can't take it anymore, and fighting in boxing rings, and literally all fighting to the death. It's I, I've read at least like thirty chapters of this. You know, back in the day when I was more okay with reading scans, and yeah, this is um, this is definitely something. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, this has been picked up in English, and hopefully, we can maybe get a complete translation of this. Um, I think initially, like I read a lot of it, and I thought it got kind of repetitive at one point. But on, uh, but like now that it's had like now that it has like an official translation, I might pick it back up and actually read it to the end. Um, again, assuming they hopefully get to do all of it, but I'm hopefully they will. But yeah, uh, next up we have Peacock King from Mokuto Ogino. Um, now this I hear is a pretty like famous series, though unfortunately I haven't heard about the series until it got picked up. Um, and it seems to be about a young man named Kujaku, uh, who is named after the Peacock Wisdom King Mahamayuri, um, and I'm assuming is like some kind of like psychic spiritual medium that like exercises ghosts and uh that that's kind of his thing and so yeah i mean the the cover for this alone is already like very striking like i definitely want to check this out Mm -hmm. yeah i would agree it looks pretty cool uh and then this next one i am very excited about i've always wanted to read this one uh silver fang the shooting star gin from yoshihiro takahashi and this this one i've definitely seen like anime clips of and i think you can find the opening on youtube or whatever um long story short it's basically about this pack of dogs who is constantly fighting against this giant bear in like the snowy tundra and that that's kind of like the basic premise of this story um I think it's even like a generational tale. Like, I think there was a sequel series to this that uh, a friend of mine is really super into called uh, Ginga Densetsu Weed, where it's like, um, it, it, it like takes place after the series and it's like, I think stars like the descendants of like the characters in the original manga, which is interesting. Um, yeah, I think this one even had like an English translation somewhere too. Like, I, I remember like digging down the rabbit hole and like, finding an like finding like some kind of english translation through like through like itunes or something it was really weird it was definitely like inaccessible um but uh yeah now it's been picked up by manga planet and i'm definitely going to be reading this one like again i've always wanted to read this one uh because i've just i've seen it around for so long uh this next one i definitely didn't know about until i saw it on a cover of jump i think um if anybody remembers the uh the jump cover that they did a few years back, I think, at this point, where it was, like, uh, all the authors basically drew characters from, like, I'm assuming the series they were probably, like, inspired by the most. And I'm pretty sure Demi Zhu drew the main character of this series in particular, uh, which was interesting. Um, and and that's kind of, like, where I know this character from, but uh, enough feeding around the bush. We have uh, Magical Taruto from Tatsuya Egawa, who apparently was the creator of Golden Boy, and I just found that out recently. And uh, I guess just to read the synopsis for this one in particular, uh, if you say the right words, one of Honmaru's dad's old books can summon a magician. His name is Taruto, uh, and he can grant wishes, but doing good deeds uh, makes him weaker. 
All that Honmaru wants is to stop being bullied and to get to hang out with his new friend. And, uh, yeah, I think this is supposed to be some kind of, like, I want to say this is a comedy series. I'm not entirely sure. Um, again, I, I know very little about this one, too, but now, now I can read it. And, uh, I, we, we, we have some more stuff from Manga Plan that we'll talk about in a second, but, boy, this was, um, this, this round of licenses in particular was a huge surprise. I was... Definitely, I don't think anybody was expecting any of these to come out in English ever anytime soon. Now, these are some pretty big classics from Weekly Shonen Jump and Weekly Young Jump. Uh, so, yeah, a pretty incredible selection here. Definitely a lot of series I'm really excited to dig into. Like, definitely Gin and Otoko Juko are like the series that, you know, I'd heard about the most and had the most interest in you know, reading for the longest time, so I'm glad there is now a way to read them in an official capacity, but I've also been interested in the other ones as well, so also excited to dig into those, too. Mm-hmm. I'm really hoping maybe in the future, if these do well enough, that maybe Manga Planet will look into more classic jump stuff, like, maybe maybe stuff that, like, you know, Viz won't do because they're too old, possibly. Um, I mean, I think some of these... I. I didn't get a chance to look into these, but I think some of these, I want to say some of these were licensed because they're not affiliated with Shueisha anymore, because it says in the article, it says in the article that these were licensed from Third Line, which I'm not sure if that's maybe the original publisher that tried to maybe do some of these in English, or maybe they're a Japanese publisher that happened to have the rights to these, because um, I think a lot of these artists are doing stuff uh, outside of Jump nowadays. And they haven't really done anything for Jump in particular since some of these series. But uh, again, that that's just my kind of maybe not so educated guess. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I would love to see like more classic stuff picked up. But I guess that's going to depend on like how well these do. And I mean, look, if you have a subscription to Manga Planet, you know, definitely go check these out. And I mean, if you're if you're a retro manga head like, you know, some of us are um, definitely go check some of these out. Um, I'll definitely be supporting these, but, uh, uh, moving on from that, we do have at least a couple more stuff from, uh, from Manga Planet. Uh, and again, all these you can basically check out by the time this episode is out. Uh, first off, we have Raise the Demon from Keito Yoshikawa, uh, in which two friends one day on a rainy day home, are on their way home, I should say, uh, until they encounter a young girl who looks like a foreigner, uh, who who leads them to a shop by the uh, by the hill there, and there they meet the shop owner, who is an old man who deals with exotic wildlife, both ordinary and extraordinary, uh, known as demon beasts. Uh, and so this is so far just from the premise. This sounds like the manga adaptation of uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's probably more interesting. Shots fired. Uh, but yeah, no, um, this sounds pretty cool. I like the cover for this one as well. I like the character designs. They're, uh, they're interesting. Um, as well as this next one uh, from Haruko Okai entitled Enoshima Waikiki Cafe, in which we have the, the owner chef of a cafe uh, who's been hearing voices and is wondering why he's not getting any customers. I mean, his, his cooking can't be that bad. It's not like he's in the wrong location. Like, what's what's going on? You know, there's... Uh, the 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 premise, or I guess the summary, I should say, doesn't really like uh, explain a whole lot. But you can assume, you know, from the cover that maybe these like 
magical creatures are probably interfering with this guy's business somehow. Um, the cover for this one's definitely really good. Like, I really like the choice in colors. Uh, I definitely want to check this one out. Uh, and then we have Sound of the Sky from Hajime Yamamura. Basically about a young kid who is an aspiring violinist. They're on their way to watch their uncle's like orchestra rehearsal. Uh, on the way, uh, he encounters a girl who is like uh, orchestrating in front of, or I guess uh, conducting in front of a bunch of pigeons or whatnot. Uh, sounds like a very interesting kid. He he arrives at the rehearsal, but is surprised to see that same girl there, uh, who apparently is the uh, orchestra conductor's daughter, who basically substitute for her father in or- in conducting the orchestra with amazing results. And, you know, our main character is deeply moved by her sound, and uh, he wants to replicate it. But as the years go by, our main character slowly loses his passion for music. Uh, but despite that, he enters college basically as a violinist and uh, basically meets that same girl in college and basically enlists her help in uh, becoming a uh, wonderful conductor. So this sounds like a very, like, your Lion April-ish musical kind of series. I wouldn't mind giving it a try. Yeah, I think the premise sounds really interesting. So, yeah, I'm always down for more music manga. So, for sure, definitely curious about this one. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, again, really good uh, licenses from Manga Planet. Uh, they really do a great job of, like, licensing some really, like, legitimately interesting stuff, uh, which is pretty cool. But speaking of Manga Planet and Fantasista... Uh, Lum, I believe Utakia also licensed some stuff as well. Yeah, indeed they did. They've licensed a couple more titles that they announced at Momiji's Online Experience uh, earlier this month. Namely, I Love You So I Do As I Say, which is from Kanoko Kino. This one is about... Different creatures who live in this cursed forest rumored to be a lair of a demon lord and the witch. And yeah, there was a lonely werewolf who's among these different creatures who wants to be friends with other creatures, but no one wants to because he's very scary. But he smells an onsen in the forest one night and that leads into a vampire with great bloodlust. And so has the wolf found a friend or something else? You know, this is another, it seems, vampire, werewolf love story. Which is always pretty cool. Then we've got a new work from Funa called I Want You So Much That I'll Let Him Violate Me. This one is about a kid who has always had a great fascination with his grandfather's beautiful android, Dill. But when his uh, cousin Taneatsu inherits everything, including Dill, after their grandfather's death, he makes a deal with Taneatsu to attain Dill's ownership. But the condition is that he has to satisfy Taneatsu in every way possible. And so that starts like a complicated relationship between the three of them. And so, yeah, I guess you can imagine from there what uh, the premise is like. I mean, in the cover, you see what I assume to be the protagonist, Kimichika, you know, kind of bent over. So, you know. You can imagine uh, the places that'll go. Then we got Shuma uh, has a series called Mirage. This is about uh, the main character Iski's little brother looks uh, books a rental boyfriend for fun, but they ditch it down and rope Iski into taking his place. And Iski doesn't really know if he's gay or not yet, but 
What he does know is that he can't help but want to be around handsome, considered rental boyfriend Tizing more and more. So, does their relationship have any chance of being more than rental transactions? So, you know, if rental girlfriend is too straight for you, I think Mirage is going to be a cool alternative. I'm definitely curious about this one. And then we have another work from Shuma, Touch of a Brush. This one is about a calligrapher, Suiz and Kataoka. Doesn't want to be the center of attention, but after a chance meeting with kimono shop owner Suiki Yuki, he gets sweeped up into a kimono photoshoot that catapults him to some stardom. So Suiz doesn't think he's worth all of his intention, but will Sugumi's aggressive pursuit of him win him over? So this is another one of those stories of like, hey, there's this protagonist who, you know, doesn't really like the limelight, but someone sees so much potential in them and wants to push them out of the shell and so it kind of helps them give confidence while also forming a deeper relationship with him it's kind of like when you think about it kind of the the whole premise of you're nice in a way it's like you know building confidence in someone to you know put themselves out there so i like those kind of stories so this looks very interesting and then we've got that time uh, a gangster was reincarnated as ramor mori darn it obanaga so you plan on making me your page a uh, very light novely, long, winding, multi-part title there. But yeah, it's about the main character, Hajime, who gets his tables turned on him when his subordinates rise against his rule. And when he wakes up, he's in another body. He's stuck in what seems to be super detailed. Period drama set. The first thing Hajime should do is leave. But good luck on that one. Some guy pushes him down, takes a moment. Has his way with him and makes him his page. Who, you know, this guy happens to be, of course, Oba Nobunaga. He's uh, in so many manga, and in this one, he's having a relationship with his page. So, I mean, the premise here has a lot of uh, implications of non-consensual stuff, which is unfortunate. But, you know, the idea of being reincarnated as Nobunaga's page and having a relationship with him is interesting. So, hopefully there's some cute parts to this, too. But, yeah, so we got about five new series which is pretty neat and is just adding to the ever great Futakia uh, library but actually there are even more series that I don't really have descriptions for but Futakia licensed from Shodensha and these included Ake Suzaki's Ryu no Oto Hana Inui's Ukami i no Yomeri Tanat's Perfect Fit Atsuki Kiyoyama's Ribonsa no Campanella, Nemui Asada's My Little Inferno, Nibushiko's Arise, uh, Adana Wo Kure, and Tomoko Yamashita's Shin Soban Illumination. So, yeah, we got some more titles there, and there's actually been some new volume editions for Tomeko's You're My Six Star, Maki Morukido's Zoku Pornographer Playback, Sakura Sawa's Momotu Manji, and Harada's Woman Angel. A lot of new titles are coming to Fukia, so lots to look forward to. Continue to add to their ever-growing library as they continue to work towards having almost or over 400 titles by the end of this year. So they're well on their way. Ooh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. But just to move on from Futakia, we do have one more Boys Love title uh, from Sublime to talk about, and this might be the mother of all of them. Oh, yeah. I'm going to tell you. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so Sublime has licensed and will be releasing Dick Fight Island. Just such an amazing localization of a title. Absolutely beautiful. Chef's Kiss. I just I just want to say I want to say that title again. 
Dick Fight Island. Just just in case anybody thought they uh, they misheard me when I said that. Um, so Dick Fight Island. I'm never going to get tired of saying that. Uh, by Ek Raybun will be coming out uh, next year on May 2021. Both available print and in digital. About eight mighty island warriors who battle to become king. The deciding factor, the one who comes last, of course. And that is the uh, description of that. So, th- just just from the little preview on uh, Sublime's Twitter account that they posted, which uh, I'm looking right now, has 930 retweets and over a thousand likes, which is, I'm sure, probably the most a lot uh, any of their tweets has gotten, it seems. Or at the very least, it seems like it got more attention than most of their tweets anyway. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so this seems to be a very uh, action-heavy, Battle Royale-esque, uh, Game of Thrones-esque even, uh, BL manga that, I gotta be honest, I I, I think I really, really want to read this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, me too. I mean, I would compare it to Keijo. It's basically like Keijo, but instead of oh, fighting yeah. with their boobs and butts they're fighting with their dicks and i like that's awesome <laughs> i think that the super ornate cod pieces they're wearing are like really fun i, I really like this idea and i want to definitely give credit you know for to the sublime team the localizes for the dick fight island name because i mean the original title of the series was the eight warriors so i mean this is like a really amazing localization decision uh, I really, I think this is gonna get a lot of people to pick up the book just on the strength of the title alone. Yeah, yeah. The next time anybody like tries to come come to you and say like, "Hey, you know, all localization is bad," uh, p- point them over to this, you know. And I think that I think this will change your mind. Yeah, I mean, like literally, like Sexiled sold immensely more overseas because of the localized title Sexile than what the original Japanese title was and how it did in Japan. So, like, you know, localization is important. Like, changing titles to, like, make it, like, eye-grabbing and, like, appealing for people to, like, pick up. Like, yeah, that's, that's important. It can do a lot to help the series beyond just being really fun to do in its own right so i mean again props to the one team like really great localization choice man we we might have to do an episode about this i want to yes i would love to <laughs> <laughs> uh, look forward to that next year may 2021 be there be square um <laughs> but that's that's about it for all the for all the be there or be straight actually if you aren't there you're <laughs> probably straight <laughs> oh boy um all right so we still have just a few more licenses to talk about lum if you want to talk about the next one i mean i guess related to manga plan and fudike is that you know japan's content overseas distribution association coda they published 16 anti-piracy manga in english that was available to read on their website you know in english for free and these included, like, manga from Akira Akazuki of Medaka Box fame, uh, Dachi Toka of Naragami fame, and Sarun Hadomune's of Metana Security, of course. You know, a bunch of side of Mini Yushiaki was also kind of like the main one. Like, they are also heavily featured in the promo, so that was cool. 
from Sergeant Frog. I read all these. Like, uh, basically, the premise of all of them are the same. It's like a character is like reading manga legally, and another character is like, hey, no, you shouldn't do that. And then they explain why, and then by the end, they convince the character who is reading things illegally to give up the, their ways and then support the official releases. And each one has varying degrees of information about, like, the ways in which piracy hurts or affects, you know, manga production and artists and stuff. I think, like, the most uh, fun, interesting one was Akira Akatsuki's, because they imagine, oh, like, yeah. this utter world where, like, this... N- it- Knight was like fighting uh, a demon or whatever, and then like they were losing power because people were reading the book illegally. Uh, that was really, really amusing, and that because of the, how creative and out there that take was. But yeah, now all these uh, manga are actually available to read on uh, Futakia and Manga Planet, so you can just read them on their site now too. So that's also pretty cool. So yeah, I mean, the, again, these are all free and they're all pretty sure they're all only four pages long and they're all kind of similar but it's like fun to see like the same author kind of give different takes i mean definitely check out the uh kira akatsuki one because again that, that one had a really fun premise all right but moving on uh we talked about starfruit books uh i believe on our last episode because, uh, as we mentioned, they will be releasing uh, Kyuta Minami's uh, Pop Life manga. And uh, it looks like uh, they're going to be releasing an English translation of an upcoming one-shot. Uh, a 34-page one-shot manga uh, from Kakio Surukawa entitled Zombie Sawanabe. And that they will be releasing that one-shot digitally on the company's website uh, in early October 2020. Uh, so that looks, uh, that looks pretty neat. Uh, I believe they posted a short little preview of the, uh, of the one shot. It looks to be, it looks to be a pretty, like, cool, like, zombie horror story kind of thing. Uh, I'll definitely, uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll probably, you know, when it comes out, we'll probably, you know, read it and probably, you know, talk about it on the podcast or something. Cause it looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. For sure. And uh, also shout out to Starfruit Books who uh, followed us on our on our Manga Mavericks Twitter account just now at the time we were recording this. So hey, wow, Starfruit Books. I mean, hey, uh, we <laughs> maybe we'll try and get in touch and uh, get a review copy, review the book on the show. If you're listening to us, Starfruit Books, we'll totally review whatever you want us to review. Yeah, uh, we're yeah. Looking forward to your stuff. I mean, same for all the publishers, but yeah. And now let's talk about some stuff from Square Enix, who license some things I'm really excited about. First up, they licensed Iori Miyasawa's Ura Sekai Picnic novel that's going to come out physically and digitally on May 25th, 2021. That is a sci-fi survival thriller about the dangerous and deadly realm of the other side, where urban legends script this and folklore legends roam. And that calls out to two women who are both in search of something, but as they set out to say to curiosity and explore this other world, will the most earth-shattering thing they discover on the other side be their feelings for one another? So this is like a cool Yuri sci-fi fantasy that uh, it sounds really interesting. I like the interesting character designs to the cover. So that is something to look forward to. But the thing that I'm super, 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 super excited about that, you know, a lot of people have, you know, been buzzing about a long time ever since that series came out. 
But yeah, we've all been hoping it'd be licensed and now Square Enix has delivered and that is I think our son is gay by Okura. That is gonna be out on uh May eleven, twenty twenty one. This is about a mom who notices that her eldest son is starting to show signs of you know uh, being attracted to men and she starts to kind of notice that when she like kind of questions him and it slips his tongue when he every you know talks about who he likes so she has an inkling that he might be gay but she decides to you know let him figure it out for himself but yeah, I mean, Hiroki, of course, is not very subtle. So there he gets into a bunch of embarrassing, cute situations. But his mom is very supportive throughout the whole thing. So yeah, this is just a nice, cute, supportive story about like this young kid kind of trying to figure himself out. And then his mom like kind of silently from the sidelines, like, you know, cheering him on. It's just very, very charming and wholesome and nice. So yeah, I am very happy for this one to get licensed. It's very cute and, you know, very lovely. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like some really nice LGBTQ titles from Square Enix here. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely glad that one is in particular is getting licensed because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you and I both have seen Maxi tweet about it, you know, the times he's read it and uh, has always made me wish that we could read it. And now we can. Yeah, and Okura's previous work, Blue Sky Feeling, is also really great, too. So, you know, mm, I'm, okay. that's another reason to look forward to this one. Like, they make great, like, LGBTQ stories. And then, finally, we've got a license from Seven Seas, who has licensed a manga, which has an anime currently airing right now, called Superheroes, with uh, an X before the E there. So, yeah, this is going to come out physically and digitally starting February 2021. It's about mantis-like aliens known as Kiseiju descending on Earth who want to eradicate the human race by absorbing humans' agency, which is their sexual passion, the fool's their ability to want to reproduce, basically their sex drive. So the government assembles a team of superheroes to fight the bugs, and they are aided by technology that allows them to transfer their erotic energy into superpowers. So basically, they channel their horniness into superpowers, which is funny. <laughs> but yeah, the main protagonist is partnered with uh, four girls, one of whom is his childhood friend. And yeah, so basically, they are tasked with saving the world, keeping their team together, and then there's this love story between like the main character and his childhood friend, but I'm sure like there's also like some harem hijinks also going on in this group. But yeah, I mean it's got a funny idea that it's like literally people are using like their horniness, especially like teenagers who are like at the peak of their puberty. Like, like, channeling those feelings in the power. I mean, we've certainly seen iterations on that in other series, but, like, this is, like, most explicit, so it's kind of amusing. I heard, actually, pretty, you know, decent things about the anime. Like, people actually do seem to respond to it pretty well. So this is one to look forward to, probably. Hmm, okay, interesting. Um, I'm more surprised that we only got a single license from Seven Seasons, and they're not just, like, drowning us right now. Yeah, I mean, this is just a splash, but I mean, it's just like the low tide that's coming in before we recedes and then we get the big wave crashing down on us in a few months. I would I would more describe it as um, 
you, you know, you know when people kind of like dip their like when they like kind of cup their fingers together and they kind of like dip them in water and then they kind of like spritz you a little bit. That that's 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 what this basically is. Sure. It's like it's like seven seas is kind of like spritz your face with a little water. Like hey, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know, but yeah, I think that's really about it for all the licenses we have to talk about for now. Indeed, and now we're going to head into, you know, the big industry event that happened in the last couple of weeks, which was, of course, the Eisner Awards. And there were several big wins at the Eisner. Most notably, the cast of the Louvre from Tayo Matsumoto and Kamomi Shirahama's Witch Hat Atelier. They won this year's Best U.S. Edition of International Material Asia Award. It was a tie, a very rare tie at the wow. Eisner's, but for both very beautifully drawn, very acclaimed titles. And of course, they were up against really great competition, including the likes of Beastars, Magic Knight, Ray Yurt, Poe Clan, and Grass. The last one is not a manga, but also similarly very good. And yeah, they came out on top, those two titles. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, a tie. Very rare to see. But also, uh, Way of the House Husband won Best Humor Publication. And that is between all the comics nominated for that category. So not even just for manga. Like, it is agreed. The best, the funniest comic from last year was Way of the House Husband. And I definitely would concur. And then also, some notable things is that Stan Sakai won Best Lettering for Yusake Jimbo. And then his Stan Sakai's second year Jimbo Complete Grass Cutter Artist Selection comic that won Best Archival Collection Project. And yeah, so those are like the big things. Oh, Sakai was also accepted into the Eisner Comic Swords Hall of Fame, which is also a big deal. And joining the ranks of other new nominees uh, like Alison Bechdel, Bill Watterson, Isim's Campbell, a bunch of really great people. Unfortunately, the two mangaka nominated for this year, Morohakyo and Keiji Nakazawa, did not get in. But hopefully they will uh, get in another time. But yeah, I mean, some really cool wins this year for some really well-deserved uh, manga. All right, well, congratulations to those titles. All right, but now we're going to move on to, unfortunately, some somber news here. Um... Unfortunately, it seems like just recently, uh, Akita Shoten in particular came out and announced that Jiro Kuwata passed away uh, this past July 2nd at the age of 85. Uh, Kuwata, uh, in particular, was born in Osaka in 1935, and he made his debut as a manga artist in 1948 when he was only 13 years old. That's uh, That's pretty amazing, honestly. I think it's safe to say that Kuwata over here in the West or in the North America, especially, would probably be most well known for his uh, his take on uh, on Batman, in particular. Uh, he he had his own like collection of uh, of Batman comics that uh, DC brought out over here, both physically and digitally. Um, I've seen those around uh, at comic book stores. Like, I really need to pick those up and read those. Like, I've always been interested in checking those out. Mm-hmm. And I guess besides that, he was also the creator of uh, of Eight Man, uh, which was a series that ran from 1963 to 1965. Um, Eight Man is um, 
I think, somewhat, I'm sure, pretty culturally important because, uh, at least according to the wiki on 8-Man, is considered Japan's earliest cyborg superhero predating even Kamen Rider, uh, as well as Shotaro Ishinomori's other series uh, that came out in the same year, uh, Cyborg 009. So that's pretty interesting. But uh, again, um, I unfortunately am not really super familiar with a lot of Kuwata's works, um, only passingly, but uh, it is... It is still a shame that we lost uh, such a um, such a prolific uh, manga artist, and uh, he will be sorely missed. Most definitely. Like, I also want to check out the Batman manga and Ape Man at some point. But yeah, it's very sad to hear he has passed away. I suppose now, though, we need to transition from this news to talk about, you know, other miscellaneous slash interest industry news. One of the bigger stories is that Faku is going to court over the Ageho word that is trying to be trademarked by a company called Shenzhen Gankai. And yeah, they are trying to trademark the word Ageho, and Faku is like trying to, you know, stop them. Because, I mean, this company also steals uh, artwork for their clothing. So, I mean, Faku is selling, you know, official Ageho merch. So it's like, you know. Also, the word, you can't really trademark that anyway. It's like like a word in the lexicon. So it's not really something you should trademark. It's like trying to trademark uh, doujinshi as like something you know, that's just something, that's just a word people refer to. Or, like, trying to trademark, like, uh, kawaii. You know? That's like a descriptor. It's not, like, something you can... It's not, like, something you made up that you can, like, trademark. That's, that usage of that word exists before you. But, yeah, so... They filed for this trademark actually quite a while ago. And formally registered it last year in April 2019. And... Yeah, so Faku is trying to contest this. And, of course, since 2018, Faku has been, you know, selling official Ageo shirts with Asanagi. So, again, you know, they are selling the official merch, and then this company from China is selling, like, knockoff merch with stolen art. So, you know, it's going to be kind of interesting to see how this turns out. But, yeah, I mean, that word does not belong to them. They did not create it. They don't have ownership over it. So, yeah. Hopefully Faku wins this fight. In terms of other like kind of industry things that have been happening, like recently Trigger did pay out a settlement to a former employee that had unpaid overtime hours with like errors and uh, long and flexible work hours. This negotiation was facilitated by the Black Eagle Union. And so in the aftermath, Trigger said that they are making efforts to improve working conditions moving forward and the employee said on a post on bk's website that it was rough but i'm glad we reached a settlement without incident and i'm hoping for the proper use of flexible hours in this industry so i would say industry overwork and poor compensation has been a problem for a while now and it's especially disheartening to hear that a studio that purports itself as like being super creative and interactive with its fans and you know, the cool studio like Trigger, you know, they also are engaging in exploitative practices and not doing well to compensate, you know, their employees. 
So the settlement is kind of a little eye-opening and hopefully sheds some light that, you know, the change in the industry really needs to be uh, kind of overall. Like, I mean, uh, this is happening in a bunch of different studios. And there was a kind of a related article from the Tokyo Keizai that Kim Morrissey basically transcribed, like basically summarized on ANN. And basically, that article purported that poor accounting and animation studios is the reason behind low anime wages. But the article, or at least Morrissey's like write-up, then goes into... Like, that is not necessarily... I mean, sure, there are a lot of creators that are, like, more creative-minded and financially-minded, but there are also people like Hideki Yano, who, like, familiarize himself with accounting in order to even, you know, start up Kara and invest in the Evangel Rebuild films. And then you have, like, a lot of people who are, like, trying to do right to run a good company that, like you know, is on top of these things. But, like, it is kind of an interesting kind of look into, like, where some of these systemic problems originate in terms of, like, why we are seeing, like, these poor accounting and, like, poor, like, practices being put into effect and compound upon each other. So I would definitely, like, like to link that article as well. But, yeah, it's just kind of a short story there isn't too many more details uh to expand on but it is like another thing that we like to check in on and like talk about hey this is happening you know we gotta pay attention to this see what can be done to push for change now i think we'll probably go into some lighter stories though and to start off like holden do you want to talk about you know a way you can read barefoot again the manga in english for free yeah, so uh, it looks like um, the Mainichi Shimbun and their Mainichi Weekly website had started publishing an abridged English version of the original Barefoot Gen manga from Keiji Nakasawa, and uh, th- this abridged version was previously published in print in Japan and uh, features select scenes and includes explanations for Japanese speakers who are learning English. And uh, so the website uh, had uploaded this series in a total of 20 parts uh, until about August 5th. And uh, basically, they will all be available on the website until the end of August. Um, So I know we're we're kind of posting this episode a little later than we were planning on, but... uh, you know, by by the time you're listening to this, you still have about two weeks to uh, to read all of this if you if you want to. Um, we'll definitely leave a link in the in the show notes for uh, for anybody who uh, who wants to check out Barefoot Gen for free. I know definitely at some point that is on my list to uh, to read. Um, I definitely want to check that out at some point. Yeah, interestingly, this is like a, not the same translation as like the official English release, and that should be pretty evident when you like read the thing on there. But yeah, I mean, it's still nice to have it at least even temporarily available, like, for free to read, because it is, like, a very kind of important story. Like, it is fictional, but it's based in a lot of autobiographical elements from Keiji Nakazawa's life, and especially when it comes to, like, the commentary on what it is like to live in Japan in the aftermath of the war, the hardships that were experienced, and the horrors, really, of living in the aftermath of the atomic bombing. So it's a really heart-wrenching difficult story but it is like a very important one like i really really 
uh, love and appreciate it. And yeah, definitely. I hope we uh, cover it on the show at some point because it's uh, it's it's an important story to talk about. Oh yeah, def- definitely on the list of stuff we want to talk about at some point. But yeah, uh, again, we'll leave a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to read it. And so yeah, I guess we can move on to our next story. Yeah, actually, this is kind of back into the weeds of you know more complicated stories and this is like in australia the kenya sydney has to remove like seven manga after lawmakers child pornography like uh complaints were put into effect uh by legislator connie uh bonaros and bonaros was concerned like the bookstore was hosting child pornography material and so call for removal of the books but the letter that they wrote didn't specify which titles but vice president of kenya keijo mori did confirm that the following titles have been removed from Kinnikunai Sydney, which include Air Manga Sensei, Sword Out of the Mind, Goblin Slayer No Game Alive, Inside Marie, Parallel Paradise, and Dragonair Academy. So, yeah, it seems like this is kind of looking into what toes the line between acceptable content. It could have bigger ramifications of this idea to crack down on sexually explicit content, especially content featuring minors in manga um, anime light novel properties. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, Aramanga Sensei was explicitly called out because not only of its child explanation, but also its incest themes. It's hard to really kind of refute that. So, you know, you kind of got to be of two minds about this. Like, on one hand, it's censorship on the one hand. Hmm. There is some point to be made, I guess, but I don't know. It's like, it feels like kind of a dangerous precedent to, like, have this kind of censorship of the art to have these books removed from the shelves. So, uh, we will have to see how the situation develops and if the ramifications here may even affect Kinikia operations overseas in the U.S. and elsewhere. So, something to pay attention to, I think, for sure. But now we're going to head into anime-related stuff, and there are some big ones. So concurrently with Comic-Con at home, Adult Swim had their own Comic-Con event, uh, basically, which they called Adult Swim Con. And they had like a series of panels that they were doing on Twitch and YouTube. It culminated in the Toonami uh, event of their Adult Swim Con, which had like live on-air announcements of various new projects they were working on. And so we can start off with kind of an update on an existing announcement. Mm-hmm. So uh, this one I really wanted to take because uh, I'm especially really excited for it i've been talking about it almost all year on the podcast but uh it looks like we're gonna have to wait longer than anticipated on the upcoming uzumaki anime as uh, that has been delayed to next year in 2021 i can't say i'm terribly surprised i mean i was i was really holding out hope that maybe that was gonna come out around september october this year but yeah, it looks like that's been delayed. I'm I'm sure probably due to the pandemic and whatnot and COVID being a thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of sucks. I was really looking forward to it. But at the same time, I'm, I'm glad that it's still coming. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess we're going to have to wait longer for it. But honestly, I, I think this will end up being worth the wait. I'm, I'm still really looking forward to it. I'd agree. 
And in the meantime, I also did post a interview with director Hiroshi Nagahama on their YouTube channel, which reveals some pretty interesting insights into the production of Uzumaki, so definitely check that out. But there were also some other big announcements that they made at their big event on Adult Swim at Home Tanami panel thing, and that was basically uh, another update on showing Noah's been in production. Play the Runner Black Lotus, that's coming in 2021 as well. So we've got a confirmation of when that is going to come out, and then we got an interview with directors also on Adult Swim's YouTube channel where they basically talked about like why the show is animated in CG, you know, their connection with Blade Runner, and then how it is like kind of working on in production while, you know, the pandemic is going on, how that has affected things. But yeah, that show is also scheduled to come out next year. So 2021 is looking to be a big year for Tommy, especially because in addition to these two shows we already knew about, there's another show that they revealed, and that is Fena Pirate Princess. They announced that this is like a new original show they've been producing. They even had a trailer for it that was like five minutes and has some really amazing slick action animation. It's all being done by Production IG and it's being directed by Kazuto Nakazawa, who's on be the beginning plus plus a bunch of other series so it's going to be like a one core 12 episodes anime that's going to tell the story of a young orphan girl Fena Hopeman she's been raised on an island where there's no hope of really becoming anything except to be used and discarded by soldiers like it seems like basically living uh slavery or indentured servitude but anyway Fena you know, decides to, you know, break the chains that is oppressing her. She has a mysterious past, of course, because she's an anime protagonist, and, you know, she decides to forge a new identity for herself, searching for a place where she can truly belong and seek out the true mysteries of the world and the key word Eden. And so, yeah, she gathers a crew, and together they are going to go off and find the grand line to find the One Piece and make their dreams <laughs> No, but, yeah, this is like a pirate show. Uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. It's like a mix of like pirate aesthetics and like these uh, Ronin kind of warrior aesthetics. So I like that. And yeah, uh, I think this show looks pretty neat. And I'm excited for it because the animation looks really great. And yeah, it's like, yeah, and I think Tanami has going to be doing some really cool new shows next year. Like, we already have three. That we know about, and now we we've known for a while that they are in production of like six, seven overall. So there's still like three, four unannounced. So I'm looking forward to seeing like what's in store in the future. I think that Crunchyroll Adult Swim's partnership to make all this stuff is really cool. Mm-hmm. Just in general, shout out to to the Adult Swim Tanami for. Uh, for really doing their best to uh, to try to make the block work during you know the pandemic and whatnot, because obviously you know the, a lot of the shows that they air on there really rely on like simul dubbing, and sometimes that you know that, that I'm, that's obviously been an issue. Yeah, there was a period there where they were like repeating their gentle fight a lot because those episodes were delayed toward the end of uh, MHA season four, so they they made that work. But yeah, I mean, they are doing a lot to liven and fresh things up. I thought it was really fun, the uh, Tanami part of the Adult Swim con, and like the live on-air announcements they played, and uh, in addition to like some of the clips from the Pillows concert, and the interviews with uh, Steve Loom and Dana Swampson and all that, so that was really cool. 
And yeah, I mean, I think that Tanami is doing some more cool things. Like they partnered up with DC to have like two movie nights, basically of Batman films, and that's pretty cool. It's been a while since uh, movies, let alone Batman, has been on the block, so that's really, really interesting. And I'm looking forward to, you know, watching Studio. I've seen those films before, but yeah, it's pretty cool to see them on air. I haven't seen those, so I'm actually really looking forward to watching those for the first time on Toonami, so that's that's good. That's going to make for a cool Saturday night. Yeah, but now we got to get into film news, and speaking of things coming to streaming services pretty soon, like, we got to... We got a pretty big franchise like coming to a stream service for the first time and ever. Yeah, so Tubi TV, in case anybody doesn't know, is uh, one of the like best services I've ever seen. It's completely free with ads and just has, I'll be frank, a shit ton of stuff available on there. Like they they have so many like really cool like niche things on there that it's. It's kind of amazing what they have available on that service. And it again, it's all free too. Like you literally just make an account and you know, you're you're free to watch whatever you want with ads. And it looks like we're going to be getting a few a few Anpan Man films. Uh Anpan Man for those who don't know is basically one of those really big like anime franchises that like nobody over here in North America really knows about. Uh, kind of on the same level as Doraemon before it got its uh, dub on Disney XD. But yeah, it's literally about a superhero whose head is made out of Anpan or bean bread or whatever. And uh, he fights against all kinds of bad guys and has all kinds of food-themed friends. And uh, it's literally like one of the most recognizable like ch- children's cartoon franchises over there. Uh, was literally, I guess, so, sort of an inspiration for the concept of One Punch Man, almost, because, you know, Saitama's design is supposed to be, like, similar to Anpan Man's, which is pretty great. Yeah, I mean, not to mention, like, like the in Japanese, if you pronounce One Punch Man, it's be like, One Punch Man? Like, it sounds like Anpan Man. Like, the entire genesis of One Punch Man is like a pun on Anpan Man. Pretty much. Um, and yeah, I believe this will be the first time anything Anpan Man related is available over here in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like these films will be coming out in the fall. I want to, s- I think there are about six films coming out over on Tubi TV in particular. Uh, that'll be coming out sometime this year. Uh, just checking the website at the time of this recording. They're obviously not out yet, but uh, no, they'll be out soon. And when they are, I will definitely be checking them out. Uh you know, look, I, I can I could use more I could use more uh kids cartoons to watch, honestly. Like I, I love stuff like Doraemon and everything, so I'll definitely be checking this uh these films out. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm glad that finally there is a way to watch on Pond Man in some form. So that's really cool. Uh but speaking of movie news, uh we got a few few more pieces to round off our news. Indeed. So Knights of Sidonia is getting a new film from Polygon Pictures called Knights of Sidonia, the Star Wars Little Spun. That's supposed to come out next year. And yeah, there isn't like too much about it. It seems like it's going to be a new story that'll take a different path from the manga. It's going to be super high, Spice of The cast will return from the TV anime. And yeah, the basically all the creative staff is returning too from the tv anime so you know it's it's interesting like the show didn't get season three but now it's kind of get like this sort of remake sort of continuation that's gonna do its own thing have its own ending 
So that's pretty interesting. I'm like, I like Knights of Sidonia. I'm definitely curious to check this film out, see what it does. Like animation looks pretty good based off the trailer. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure Netflix will get it since they got the series. It would be, I mean, I'm not holding out to for theaters to even reopen next year, but yeah, we will see. But speaking of licenses of cool films and CG films of that, Jenkins has licensed the Lee's uh, new CG film, Earwig and the Witch, based on the Diana Wynne-Jones novel of the same name. This is basically their second uh, adaptation of the Diana Wynne-Jones novel after Howl's. But yeah, I mean, Goro Miyazaki is directing this one. And uh, Goro previously directed Tales of Earthsea and From Up on Poppy Hill. And uh, yeah, so this is uh, going to be like a 80 or so minute feature. So a little sh- on the short end, but it's basically about a uh, orphan who lives at uh, St. Morwald's home for children. She likes actually living there because she gets whatever she wants and whenever she wants it ever since she, you know, she has been a baby. But that changes when Bella Yaga and the Mandrake come to St. Morwald's. These guys as foster parents and they whisk them off to their mysterious house full of invisible wounds, portions of spellbooks and there's magic around every corner. So most children would run terror from a house like that, but not Earwig, because using her own cleverness and with help from a talking cat, she decides to show the witch who is boss. So, I mean, the cover uh, promotional image of this sounds really, really, I mean, looked really, really fun. Like, it seems like the witches are like thing, thing like uh, all these musical instruments, and uh, Earwig is like shouting into this mic. So it seems like there's going to be kind of a rebellious aesthetic attitude into this character that I enjoy. So yeah, I mean, I think this looks really interesting. It's interesting to see, you know, Ghibli veer into doing CG animated films. This is going to be like basically Goro Miyazaki's third film. I'm actually, you know, not as down on Earthsea as a lot of people. And I actually quite enjoyed Up on Poppy Hill. So I'm definitely interested in this. And yeah, I think uh, it's good to see like a new Ghibli film. GK's plans to release this in theaters next year. And hopefully they can. Similarly, I hope they can uh, release the Demon Slayer film in theaters next year. That is coming out with from uh, Funimation and Aniplex. The film is coming out in Japan in theaters, supposedly, hopefully, in October. Uh, and then Funimation and Aniplex plan to release it in theaters in 2021. So, you know, I would like to see that in theaters. So, hopefully, hopefully. Hey, yeah, uh, hopefully. I mean, I... I mean, yeah, there's so many, like, so many cool anime films being picked up that, like, I legitimately don't know if we'll ever see in theaters or not, and that's, that really bums me out, because, like, you know, but besides these two, like, I still really want to watch that new, uh, that new CG Lupin movie that, uh, that G gets picked up as well. Man, I really wish. I watched, uh, Ongaku from the Japan Society, they did the, like, streaming thing and so they had that available to rent and that's a film i'd like to see in a theater too especially as it gets to like this big climax where like they go all out crazy with the concert and i'm like man it'll be so disappointing it's this and children of the sea isn't coming out on like digital and it's like man i wish i wish this was in theaters it was supposed to be in theaters man now it's gonna be out on home video and blu-ray before that i hope they put this in theaters still i would like to see that but man yeah i i miss seeing films in the theater it's 
it's a fun experience. So I hope that we get to have that experience. I hope theaters reopen. I hope Leonard will destroy thanks to this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe one day. I mean, yeah, hopefully that day comes soon. But today we have just finished doing all this news, but we are not done by a long shot because now we have some really cool new series to talk about from Iridori Sakura and new simulpugs from Wiz, Manga Mo, and Denpa, and I think we'll jump right into those. All right, but uh, we have a lot of interesting things to talk about, and uh, I think first off we should just get around to uh, to, to the new line of uh, Iridori comics uh, that uh, have just come out recently. These are comics from the Iridori Sakura imprint, which is going to be an imprint specifically for boys love Yuri and LGBTQ works. So they distinguish themselves from the previous Iridori imprint in that way, in that specific focus, which is interesting because in that first round of Iridori Aqua Comics that we reviewed, there were two LGBTQ works in there in terms of the Yuri manga from Hiroyuki and then the like polyamorous manga from Hiroyuki. So that's kind of interesting. I wonder if those are going to be brought under the Sakura umbrella now, but I'm glad to see a uh, imprint specific to queer manga. And I think this is an interesting launch slate as well. We are reviewing some safer work titles, but it is worth doing that they will have 18 plus titles as well. And in fact, we were offered one of them to review, but On did not have it like ready to send to us. So we won't be talking about that one this time. But we do have three really interesting titles to talk about. And I think we'll start off with Why Does Love Do This To Me? This is the first of two Yuri uh, manga in this sample selection of these launch titles that we've got. And of the three manga, I think this might be the one I enjoy the most without any caveats. This is an actual simple story. I think the best way for me to describe it would be this is kind of like Yuri Kaguya-sama in how the two protagonists are trying to convince each other to start a relationship. So the story begins with like Amori saying, oh, uh, actually, I just realized, you know, the I missed the last train home. Uh, and actually, it's a, really a ploy to get Saki to invite her over to her house. And then Sakura is thinking to herself, oh my gosh, this is my chance to have her come over to my place. And so it's like this push and pull throughout the chapter of them like trying to get the other to say and like do the thing that will progress like a potential relationship. One of the funniest parts to me is like when they're trying to gauge the other's reactions, like when... Amori is, like, taking off her clothes and dressing, trying to gauge Saki's reaction. And, like, they are disappointed, like, oh, no, she didn't react the way I thought. She doesn't see me in that way. And it's a sweet story because, you know, it's kind of like these people are really trying to hit on the other person, start a relationship. But, like, they are afraid of, like, just be coming out because they're afraid of getting hurt. They're afraid of getting rejected. And then, you know, ultimately, like, kind of like an accidental kiss while asleep from Saki to Amori happens. And it's a really nice scene where it's like, oh, she, Asaki's, like, really apologetic at first. But then, like, Amori tells her, you know, 
were you thinking of me? Did you mistake me for someone else? Because even if it wasn't mistaken, it made me so happy. And then, like, they embrace, and then they start kissing, and then it's very cute. Like, they've started a relationship. So I thought this was just a really, really sweet little story. And that's probably why I enjoyed it the most out of these three. Because, like, in the Texas story, it, like, ha- it has, like, the unambiguously happiest ending for all the characters involved. Oh, yeah. Like... <sighs> I, I will admit when I was reading this one, I was I was afraid that this one was gonna this was gonna end like really really sadly because at, at first it kind of like looks like it's going to for a little bit, especially when like you know uh when when the both of them are so like you know resigned with themselves and they're just kind of like well. I guess it's not meant to be, and like one of them's crying in the shower, and like yeah, Maury's crying in the shower. That that, that kind of got yeah. me, honestly. Like, man, I feel that. <laughs> but um, man, yeah, I'm I'm glad this one had a happier ending, uh, compared to at least uh, one of the other ones we're going to talk about here. But uh, yeah, um, I can't I can't say I have like a lot to say about this one other than I. I I I think your comparison to Kaguya-sama is is pretty on base, but uh, yeah, I I I agree. I just thought this was a really sweet story, and I'm 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 glad these two got together. That made me very happy. Yeah, and I am much more supportive of this relationship, I suppose, than the relationship in the other Yuri title. She wants to do what? Now, this, I saw some pushback from people who have reviewed it who were really not a fan of how one of the characters treats the other. Personally, I don't mind it as much. It is problematic, but I think that it is, there's just enough humor that, and you, because you know the audience is like aimed towards like adults, a specific audience, it's, Less of a problem because you know it is a specific fantasy kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, it is going to be problematic. It's going to be like kind of a tough read for people because it is like a relationship predicated on one character sexually harassing the other character. The story is basically Momoko is turning 30. She's like an office worker and like she is invited by her younger co-worker who's like 25 Anzu to come over to her place for drinks. But, you know, as they're talking about what they're going to do, like throughout the week, Anzu is like consistently saying some really sexually charred stuff about what she wants to do with Momoko. And it makes um, Momoko uncomfortable, but regardless, they do get together on Friday night. But then uh, Anzu, like, pushes Momoko down on the bed, and it's, you know, she's not very respectful of, like, you know, intimacy and, like, utter, like, Momoko's privacy and feelings, so... It can be, like, difficult in that way. Mainly the punchline is, like, Anzu is trying to progress a relationship, but then Momoko, like, acknowledges that, oh, I I was actually a virgin. I'm actually incredibly nervous about this stuff. And then it just kind of seems in the aftermath that a relationship is going to form from there, as Anzu is actually the experienced, like, younger Kohai who's going to teach, like, the older experienced senpai of hers like how how love works and like how to be kind of intimate 
there is a like kind of a sweet moment in the middle of the chapter where you know Anzu is saying like, "Hey, you know, I'm kind of bi pan. I don't really mind going with boys or girls, but like I was wondering like." If I ever going to develop feelings for someone, could I let them get close? So it gets to a sense that she is joking. She makes these like really sexually explicit jokes, you know, just to kind of protect herself, kind of the hide that she does have genuine feelings. So it's kind of like an interesting push and pull. Like she, she is trying to gauge whether she will push momoko away and if that happens she would just play it off in a joke she, she wouldn't hurt herself but if momoko you know sticks with her then that is also kind of a little bit reassuring so it's it's an interesting kind of reason why she's acting that way which is not a reason i'm not as down in it i'm not like angry about like the problematic counted in this like i think that it is kind of a interesting like relationship power dynamic kind of story that they have set up but that's also kind of the other thing i have about this story is that it really feels like kind of a setup to something that should be a longer story i don't really feel like it truly reaches its conclusion it reaches a stopping point but it feels like this is like the first chapter of what should be an ongoing series and perhaps it will be but to compare with the other two of the set of three the other ones feel like complete stories, and this one does not. So that is probably the biggest reason why I felt the least satisfied with this one. But I do think the art is cute, and I think that the idea of the power dynamic and the relationship and the reasons why that dynamic exists is interesting and could be explored very interestingly if this was, like, a longer series. Yeah, like, I I like this one enough to where, like, if, if there was another, like, chapter of this or, like, a sequel to this, like, I would read it. And, uh, you know, I also just want to put out there, you know... Uh, when I initially read this, like, yeah, I, I did see some other people who weren't very okay with the with the dynamic here of the relationship, and I, I think that's valid, but at the same time, I do agree that, like, it didn't bother me in particular either, just because I... Uh, I I thought this was cute enough, and I thought it was uh, like lighthearted enough to where it didn't feel too real to me. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the best way to put it is. Um, I think that Yuri Mutter wrote a really great review of this on like what made her uncomfortable about this, and she wrote some really great reviews of all three of these Iridori Sakura uh, Dojin. So I would definitely. Like to shout her out, leave links to her reviews in the show notes, because I think that she did, like, write about, hey, you know, there's some good stuff here, but, like, this is kind of what makes me uncomfortable about this and why I can't recommend it. And I think that's an absolutely valid, you know, perspective to have. I personally wasn't too offended by it, but I can definitely see why this is not the kind of story people would want to read because it does hit maybe too close to home to like real world sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. I think this one comparatively was like the funniest out of the three in terms of like, uh, uh, of like the translation work. Uh, I really liked, <laughs> I really liked the moment where, uh, they're in the elevator and, uh, uh, Anzu goes, you know, I've been stripping you down with my eyes and, uh, 
And then she goes, oh, shoestring fries. I love them. Like, I, I really I really appreciated that wordplay there. Uh, that, that got a genuine laugh out of me. Yeah, that was a great translation choice for sure. Like, that was a great way to sell the joke. I, I would agree. I do think that the artist, Ichinori, has some really great paneling and comedic timing in this. And I think that really helped sell the humor in a way that made the story very palatable and made it feel like light and not very, you know, uncomfortable to me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I actually think that artistically, this is like really, really well done. I personally found why does love do this to me a little more funny, probably because it was a little more relatable in the ways it was funny in terms of like trying to convince the other person you know, to do something you want to do and then being frustrated when they're not, you know, getting the hint. But I do think there are also some good humor in this as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I, I I was fine with this one. In fact, I, I, if given the chance, I would, I would actually read more from this artist personally. For sure. I would say the same with Ayuma Ayuma 2 and our next author we're going to talk about Isaki Uta who wrote Minikun is a sexual which is really interesting and I think why we saved this for last because this is not only a really unique representation of an ace character but it is from an ace artist someone oh, okay. who identifies as ace well yeah I mean I mean the, I guess I guess uh, so that, that makes like sense a lot yeah. of the framing <laughs> A lot of the framing of this comic to me was completely changed by reading the afterword and reading the intentions of the author in writing the story. And then, of course, the epilogue stuff of what happens to characters like after the last page of the story, which also kind of softens the blow of how the story pans out. But basically, the idea of this story is that Mirai is our protagonist. She really loves this guy, Minikun. Like, she loves everything about him the way he looks the way he acts and while she's drunk one night she basically confesses to him and asks him to go out with her and Mine comes reluctant at first because you know he thinks that there's probably someone else out there who can make Mirai happier because he himself you know is not really comfortable with sexual intimacy, physical intimacy because he identifies as sexual. He's attracted to men and women. He is bisexual but he has no interest in physical or sexual intimacy. So you know, he could probably do kiss, he could probably have, but those aren't things like he wants to do. But he explains that to Mirai and Mirai doesn't totally get it at first, but she does ultimately want to go out with Minekun, so they do start a relationship. And she does have doubts. I mean, she has like a really problematic biphobic friend who is like naysaying oh this whole idea that he's asexual is probably just a cover. He's probably like gay and needs someone to act straight. So I really don't like her friend at all. And even with the recontextualization of like the afterward, like like that actually makes her worse. She reminds me of uh, Kotone from uh, Love Me For Who I Am. But anyway, so Mine and Mirai actually had, go on a date. They have some, you know, cute moments. They go see the latest Revengers film. 
That was great. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that they finally made a Revengers film. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I guess after the Avengers, after the Defenders, yeah, do the Revengers, you know, get Wonder Man in there, get Anti-Venom, Virtue, Captain Ultra, Glide, all those guys. <laughs> I, I, I think that that was something I really liked about this one in particular is that I, I just... I, I, I just like those little touches, like how Murai is like, uh, is like is like a fan of of the MCU. Yeah, very blatantly the MCU. They start talking during the chapter about what is very clearly the plot of Captain America's Civil War in terms of the guy with the shields antagonistic rivalry with the businessman guy so <laughs> it's it's very transparent that he is a fan of the mcu and that's actually kind of cute that they kind of bond over watching the mcu films at their place mm-hmm. and they just have a fun time doing that but during all these like moments even though mariah is having a lot of fun with minikun there's just that lacking of sexual intimacy, that physical intimacy that she wants that is kind of nagging at her. She does understand where Minikun is coming from. She does ask Minikun about it, that he's also not really sure about himself, of why he feels the way he does. So he tries to like read and learn about it. He's trying to figure out what makes him like stand out what he feels like he may be lacking compared to quote unquote normal people and so trying to understand what it even means to be normal but like the fact that he's in this relationship with Mirai because he never thought he could be in a relationship like he's really glad about that and so that is kind of a sweet thing but ultimately at one point Mariah confesses to her friend that she does feel really lonely at times because they can't have, like, a lot of physical intimacy because Minikun doesn't like it. And while talking it over with her friend and saying that, you know, her friend is trying to say, oh, hey, I could introduce you to a guy if you ever break up. Like, eventually she wears Mariah down enough to the like, she says, okay, sure, if it happens, I'll let you know. But Minikun overhears this. And so on their next date, like, he proposes an ultimatum. He, like, says, you know, I I can't give you whatever you want, so I'm sorry. And then, actually, Mariah's the one who proposes an ultimatum, saying, hey, you know, just once the basement kiss me and do that, and I'll break up with you. Because she she was thinking, you know, he'll say no, so even if he doesn't engage intimately with me, it's okay, because he'll be by my side forever. But he does do it. He does it for her because he doesn't think that he can make her happy and that's like this really sad bittersweet thing but before they part ways she tells Mine that he is not lacking you know she fell in love with him there's so much he offers and thanks him for falling in love with him being able to fall in love with him but yeah that's kind of ultimately the end of Mine's story he like kind of walks off after leaving her place like morning oh man I wonder if she'll return my blueism locatingers and cries about, you know, having actually experienced feelings of love. He's like so broken up about it that like he gets he, he gets like lost. He just kind of doesn't really understand like where he is at all. Yeah, he he's kind of lost in his thoughts. So he he's just like wandering before realizing, oh, where am I? But yeah, in the final page epilogue. It explains that Mariah met another guy at her workplace. You know, they got together. 
she lost her virginity, but, you know, even though she's pursuing other relationships now, she remembers, like, what many concerns are tanking her for the relationship, and then, you know, remembers that relationship and still feels kind of heartbroken about it. And so it ends on that note. And so when I initially read this for the first time, I was kind of... I had my guard up about the representation because there are some things about how Minikun is depicted kind of like in the sense that he's like sort of robotic in how he doesn't really understand other people's emotions or his own emotions and stuff and is trying to figure that out. I do think there's actually an interesting element that Burai, you could, I mean, Minikun, you could do a a reading of him as like, on the autism spectrum because of how he hyper fixates on things mm, of like how yeah. at the movies like when where i was trying to call on him he was like saying oh actually i just wanted to concentrate on the film and then how he like really you know fixates on like all the details of like nerdy things and stuff i could see that i think yeah. that's an interesting reading of that but yeah i mean there was aspects of like how Rachel panned out and the fact that in the text of, like, the main story, we don't see, like, a happy ending for Minikun. We see, like, that Mirai has moved on, but we don't really know what, what happens to him after that in, like, just these pages alone. And that is kind of a bitter note to end on, because, like, as, you know, an ace character, you kind of don't want this idea that, you know, ace characters, really anyone LGBTQIA, like, are doomed in their relationships. Like, they can have happy relationships and even if like he is not interested in sexual or physical intimacy he can have a fulfilling romantic relationship with someone so it is very sad that in the main story like we don't see that happen for Mine, and it's like that as re- and like the story is about Mirai it's fra- like it's her perspective and seeing Minikuns through her eyes like as this like cis straight person trying to understand an asexual person so there's that angle of it so it is does remind, though, of other stories that are also framed like that, where it's really about the straight protagonist and then the queer, you know, love interest is just there to, like, kind of be a support in their story, in their development. Minikun helps her also kind of understand, like, what she wants in a relationship and, like, is emotionally fulfilling for her, but it's it's not necessarily, like, the best note that the story ends on this idea of, like, oh, like, she'll always have memories of Nene-kun, but, like, that is just, like, that. It's just, like, a memory of a relationship that was kind of ill-fated. So that is why the afterword is so important in terms of, like, appreciating the story for me, because it, from Isaki's own words, like, this story came about because they started trying to figure out like why they weren't really vibing with romance stories. But, and then they learned about what an asexual person was. And then that resonated with them. They resonated with being asexual and they decided to make a manga about that idea. And so they put actually a lot of themselves in Mene's character, though they also make him a bit different from themselves and they acknowledge that you know asexuality is like a spectrum it means different things for different people and definitely the representation of minikun and this is not meant to be like a blanket representation of like every kind of asexual person and so you know it's clear that the author izaki 
they understood that. And so they were just trying to work through their own feelings about understanding asexuality and their own asexuality. And so that afterward, that reframing of like what the author's intentions were with this story, you know, that did like, you know, make the story a lot better upon reread and like with that consideration of like knowing what the author's intention with the character was and knowing that they've done the research, they have the lived experiences and feelings and they're just trying to work through them. That doesn't mean it's completely unproblematic in the representation, but that does mean, I think, that there is a lot more authenticity and effort and sincerity in it. And also what I appreciate is the what happened after epilogue that shows that Mariah, uh, well, actually, Minikun, they did find a boyfriend. They found another ace bisexual person, a boyfriend, and who also loves like Marvel movies <laughs> going to Universal Studios, Marvel Studio. So they had a happy ending. And we also see that, you know, Mariah, you know, they had actually a couple of relationships after Minikun. And, you know, they, they did return the Blu-rays, though they kept the bright container kind of as a memory, it seems, of uh, Benikun. And, you know, the relationship had a lasting impact on her, even though she had other relationships after that. And then, of course, it reveals that her friend was actually a lesbian who was into her. So, again, you know, with the Katone from Love Me For Who I Am comparison of, like, kind of a jealous queer person kind of attacking another queer person, you know, out of out of like that kind of jealousy of them being able to express themselves and the other person being kind of more in the closet and hiding their feelings. But yeah, so again, this is interesting to me once again, because like reading the story the first time without the epilogue and then reading the story the second time with that afterward in mind, you know, completely changed by like feelings, perceptions of it. I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, t- I tweeted about this, about how this was, like, the most interesting story out of the three to me, and I still think it is, just as uh, as, as someone who is, you know, uh, cisgender male, heterosexual, um, it, it was it was interesting to, to read a story about someone who was ace. I, I thought it was interesting to explore a, a character who's ace, because I, I typically don't get to read a lot of stories about uh those kinds of characters uh so i i thought i thought this was a for for me anyway this was kind of an interesting exploration but i i can see why you know having the story framed through someone who is cisgendered may be problematic um i it, 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 i i saw a review that that brought that up and uh, i hadn't really considered that on my first uh, on my first read also i i feel bad that i didn't read the afterword on this particular story, because yeah, uh, some of this context would have been uh, would have been nice to keep in mind. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought this was just an interesting exploration of uh, uh, like character exploration kind of thing, um, and I thought the relationship was interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I overall I thought this was uh, yeah, I'm using interesting a lot, but. Uh, I thought this was just the most interesting story to read, and I would definitely read more stuff from this author. Most definitely. I mean, I am so in support of this author and them exploring ace identity and sexuality in this way. I'd love to see more stories from them about these topics. And I think that's kind of the great thing about Dojinchi, about self-published comics, is that it allows authors to work through some really personal ideas and feelings they have that they might not be able to 
you know, publish it in mainstream publication, but as a self-published independent comic, they can get those stories out there and they can be so valuable and interesting. And yeah, that's why I'm really glad that Iridori is continuing to do great work in publishing overseas these Dudinchi, and especially now doing a concerted focus with the soccer imprint on LGBTQIA titles. Um, in general, uh, for anyone who you know is interested in these titles and wants to wants to read them, I uh, I, I believe they're available on Amazon Kindle and Comixology, or they will be anyway. Yeah, and actually, Iridori has their own site now, Iridori Light, that they've set up for you to read their comics on there directly as well. Mm, that's good, that's good. Um, and so, yeah, well, we'll definitely leave links to uh, all the titles we talked about in the uh, in the show notes. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I mean, in general, I I liked all of these, even even with some of the caveats. I, on some level, I enjoyed all three of these anyway, which is good. Yeah, I would say so as well. I was I enjoyed all three of these and I am excited to see future work from these authors. And also future works in the Iridori Sakura imprint. I think again, Iridori is doing some really great job with bringing more Dojinchi interesting independent comics over here. Yeah, for sure. And uh yeah, I guess from here, um we have some pubs actually to talk about. Yeah, we're going from independent comics to some more mainstream comics, mainstream publications. Um, you want to talk about Mangamo? Mangamo indeed is really doing an interesting new simulpub of Japan Sinks 2020. And Japan Sinks, of course, has been adapted recently into an anime series by Masaki Yuasa. That really got a lot of buzz because it is quite relevant to the times in terms of being an apocalyptic text that is about a lot of tragedy and how people respond to tragedy. And the manga adaptation is meant to coincide with Yuasa's anime. However, I think that the author has gone in a completely different take on it. They share character designs, but... In terms of execution, in terms of framing, they have gone in a different direction. And this really sticks out to me, especially with the characterization of our main protagonist, Ayumu, who, in this manga adaptation, like, there is this sense that she is very angry, very, like, frustrated about what is happening to Japan. Whereas in the anime version, you know, she is kind of overwhelmed by everything that's going on and constantly frantic and frustrated and it's like she's just riddled with anxiety in this manga adaptation she is like fiercely angry she's like staunchly like i'm not gonna let this freaking earthquake stop my dreams of going and running at the olympics and representing japan so it's an interesting like difference there i mean the so the premise of Japan Sinks, I feel, is kind of straightforward. The idea is that earthquakes are happening around Japan. Something's happening with the tonic place. Japan is sinking. I think an interesting choice that the manga makes is that it opens up kind of not hiding, shying away from that premise. Because the opening pages show 
like from space, Oscar Knights is looking down at what's happening in Japan, which is an interesting choice because it establishes, hey, the disaster is happening. Whereas in other interpretations, like in the anime, for example, we start off with the normalcy. We get a sense of the daily life happening before the tragedy starts. But here, like we know that it's coming before, you know, we get into the daily life. But basically, our protagonist, Ayumu, she's a big track star. She dreams of representing Japan on the national stage at the Olympics. She lives with her family, her mom's out on a flight, coming back home, her dad is a construction worker, heading off to work. In this manga version, it's interesting that she kind of is resentful of her mom for being away, like, on this flight and not being there to watch her at her track meets and stuff. Mm. So that's kind of interesting change in characterization. She also has a little brother who's a gamer, talk- who talks with, like, his friends from overseas and whatnot, which, you know, based on the anime, is going to be an important detail going forward. But yeah, like, you know, we another interesting difference is that during the first chapter, especially we see like snapshots of like researchers like studying the tectonic plates and referencing like Dr. Tadakoro. And then we see like a person having like the picture of uh, the YouTuber that becomes important later in the anime version kite. So there's a lot more setup foreshadowing, like more explicitly there. But yeah, what happens is, of course, the earthquake happens and Tokyo is like destroyed. And there's like, it's really horrific. Like, uh, Ayumu is in her locker room when the big quake happens. And when she wakes up, she's like, okay, I can see my feet. But then, uh oh, like she sees that her, her foot has kind of been crushed by a falling pillar. Oh, and she man. looks around and seems like, like, oh, her f- f- the entire room is destroyed. Her friends are like crushed under lockers and concrete and stuff. And this is another, again, like the biggest changes with this adaptation is how a human character is. Because in this version, the manga version, she tries to save Sachi. In the anime version, it's a big point that she runs away. She, she sees her friend look reaching out for her and she just runs away because she can't handle it. But here, like she tries to save and is like frustrated that she couldn't save her. And then she sees the devastation of Japan and she gets angry. And then she thinks about, like, her dream of representing Japan. And she says, I'm not going to lose to this. I'm not going to, you know, give up on my dream. So, see, initially when when I heard that Mangamo uh, was going to uh, simulpub this, I, I initially wasn't super interested because I, I just kind of assumed, like, oh, this is just going to be a, a manga adaptation of the new anime coming out. And it's, it, like, it's supposed to be, like, a promotional thing. But, uh but hearing a few episodes ago about how, like, you know, Japan Sinks is actually like originally a novel or whatnot, and I was, I was, go- I was going to ask if this manga is supposed to be an adaptation of that new anime, but so far it doesn't sound like it that much. It shares the basic outline of the plot and the character designs are similar to the anime's character designs, but the characterization and execution are very different. Okay, I. D- do really love the artwork of the manga Kanichi Watanabe's artwork. It's really, really beautiful and well done, and I think they can depict like the scale of the travesty really, really well in terms of like how horrifying and brutal it is. But also their use of color in the second chapter when oh, that was nice. Ayumu reunites with her family. That was really, really great. Yeah, I, I especially loved the the, the the pages like depicting the actual like earthquake and whatnot. Like, ooh, that uh Yeah. The, that that was uh that that like made me feel really like uneasy. Like I I could feel like the size of the impact. 
Oh, yeah. Like, just the panel of, like, everyone being lifted up, like, in midair just suddenly. And then, like, they're just, just a shake. Like, just this, just the furious lines and effects across the screen. Like, that is, like, that was very impactful. That was like, oh, crap, some devastations happened here. Oh, yeah. This is huge. Yeah. Um. So, j- just to preface this, I haven't seen any of the anime yet. I've heard mostly good things about it, on my end, anyway. I know some other people have, who I've seen say that, like, oh, I've seen, like, mixed uh, reactions from this. And I... I wonder if that's because, like, uh, because I've also seen some people say, like, hey, this is good, but I don't know if I really want to watch this in the year of our Lord 2020, what with everything going on. Like, I feel like this show might be, uh, might be a bit much for some people right now, and that's, again, totally valid. But yeah, I don't know. Re- reading these first two chapters really just makes me want to watch the show, honestly. Yeah, I mean, the show is really great. Masaki Yuasa did an amazing job with it. But the, what's interesting to me about this manga version by Watanabe is just the difference of perspective, obviously, that's reflected in how Ayumu's character is presented in being someone who, in the wake of this tragedy, does not want to give in into sorrow and give up on like her dedication to her dream. Whereas that is not really an element of the anime's version of the character where she is like from the beginning overwhelmed by the situation and feeling these feelings of guilt of like leaving her friends behind and all that stuff. So it's, it's very completely different, the approach there. I think in Yuasa's adaptation, even though he also shows the beauty of, well, no, even though he shows like the horror of what is going on, like, consistently, like, in the first two episodes especially, like, you have these moments where the your family reunites, you know, and it looks like things are looking up, you know, you have, like, the dad in particular trying to be a beat, the mom trying to be a beat, saying, hey, we'll get through this, we okay, and then consistently throughout those episodes, those moments of positivity are, like, kind of undermined by, like, the horror that is in the background that they're kind of trying to turn their eyes away from, not make their kids think too hard about. And, of course, that comes to head at the end of the second episode when the big tragedy happens, even, you know, in the personal level for the characters. But it's also, all while this is going on, Yuasa is, like, depicting the world, the destroyed Japan, it's beautiful, and that comes across in, like, the music choices and the color choices, the scenery. Like, it's this really interesting thing. It's like, this is at once horrific, but also there is still some beauty in this destruction, and it's just kind of this interesting mixed feeling effect there. But the manga version is very different it does not focus on like hey there is any element of beauty in this this is something that is like really chaotic and devastating and like ayumu is trying her best to stay strong and not be defeated but there is this in the second chapter before she notices the light she does almost break down before finally reuniting her family but then of course once she is reunited that's when the fires happen around tokyo so you know there's still tons of devastation constantly going on. So, it's just, again, it's just a difference in approach that I find interesting. It makes me feel like both versions are worth checking out to see, like, this different interpretation. And again, Japan Sinks is a text that has been around for 50 years. Like, it has constant reinterpretations and different perspectives. I mean... The protagonist of this word of Japan Sinks is, are different from the protagonist of the original Japan Sinks which is another interesting choice. So I think that 
both versions are worth checking out. I'm really curious to see where Watanabe goes with his interpretation, as much as I really, really enjoyed Yuasa's interpretation. Yeah, I I wish I could speak to the anime adaptation, but uh, I kind of wanted to, I wanted to read the manga kind of going in blind. And the the manga version, I I thought was, uh, uh, I mean, just just from the first two chapters, not not like a lot happens. Uh, It's a very breezy read. But uh, I, I I just I thought it was really interesting. Um, again, a lot of really great, very impactful moments. I like kind of the resiliency and the optimism of the manga so far. I don't think it's necessarily optimistic. I think it's defiant. I think it's like, no, fuck this. I'm not going to let myself be beaten down. <laughs> that that's probably better actually yeah <laughs> like the the anime version is optimistic okay yeah like, i feel that fair. comes across more yeah i i just i, I kind of like uh I, I guess from what what you're describing i do kind of like the take the manga is uh taking on i guess uh and again you mentioned the uh the one color page that chapter two has i thought that was see th- that's what i love about like digital comics is that like you can you can kind of get away with those splashes of color to really like uh to really make an impact or to really make certain scenes stand out and uh, I I thought that was really good and uh yeah I again this this just makes me want to check out the show and uh I don't know I I hopefully I can maybe keep up with the manga for this one cuz I I do want to keep reading it most definitely like I'm I'm actually very excited to keep up with this. Like I'm really fascinated with Japan Sinks as a story from my experiences with this. And I actually really wanna check out like Takao Saito's interpretation from back in the day. That was like the most famous like uh, manga interpretation before this one. So I wanna go revisit that. And that was available on Crunchyroll Manga for a time, I believe. I don't know if it's still Ooh, are we are we we're we're we're, ta- we're talking to Kao Saito Gogo 13. Saito, really? Gogo okay. 13? That's see yeah, I yeah. I did I didn't know he did an uh adaptation of this. St- I'll have to check that out too. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, this is not look as on Crunchyroll anymore if it was on there. I don't think I think they removed older Takao Saito stuff a long time ago. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I definitely want to check hunt that down and see like how his interpretation panned out as well. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um in terms of the the Japan Sinks manga on Manga Mo, I think we've mentioned Manga Mo on the show before. It's it's an app that has literally hundreds and hundreds of manga on there including, you know, a, a lot of stuff from Kodansha like they literally have like the first like 50 60 or so chapters of stuff like Fire Force and Fairy Tale Attack on Titan so a lot of like really popular stuff that I know people really like and then uh in general I know they're they're licensing like you know other manga that I I don't think were originally licensed here in North America which is pretty cool yeah they have a few big stuff I think that Japan Sinks is like their big simulpub. I don't think they're doing under like big simulpubs, but they have like a lot of really interesting exclusive stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, de- I definitely at some point want to like go through the manga mo kind of catalog a li- like once, I guess once more stuff kind of builds up. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, we, we talked about it before. Like, I, I'm really excited to see where manga mo goes. Uh, for anybody who wants to subscribe to it, it's uh, it's four ninety nine a month, I believe. And uh, I believe, like, the first few chapters are available for free users, if not, like, the very first chapters 
of a lot of series. Well, what you can do is that there's a one-month free trial, and that allows you to check out chapters for the one-month free trial. Okay, they don't have any free chapters for non-subscribers? I thought they did. I don't recall. I mean, now that I'm a subscriber, I it's it's, 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 it's hard to see. Sure, yeah, I get that. Um, I mean, I, I mean that's good that they offer one month free trials still anyway. So, you know, if you if you get a subscription to Manga Mo, uh, I'd say definitely check this out for yourself if anyone's interested in reading it. Again, they have they have so much stuff on there that like uh, even I've barely like been able to like scratch the surface on. Uh, uh, ho- hopefully, we can. Uh, Hopefully, maybe we can cover some titles from Manga Mo on the show at some point. If, if there's anything that like stands out to us, maybe. Definitely. But yeah, no, definitely go subscribe to that uh, if anyone's interested. And uh, now I think we should just move on to our last Cyberpub. Uh, one that I think was literally announced like the day we recorded our last, uh, our last Jumpstart discussion. It was a surprise. I think it, maybe it was announced like that day because it came like a week later. But yeah, it's interesting. It is a new manga from the creator of Rosario Vampire, though now they are writing under a different name, which is interesting. And they've made the interesting choice of publishing and writing the manga in a left-to-right reading format. And this manga is Ghost Reaper Girl by Akisa Saike. And Ghost Reaper Girl is about a 28-year-old actress who's kind of struggling in the industry. She's mainly known for playing, like, corpses. Her one major role was in a niche late-night action horror television show as Ghost Reaper Girl, who was, like, a crime fighter who wore a swimsuit and stuff. But it was a very niche, unpopular show, so not a lot of people know about it. And she is being targeted by spirits who have escaped from hell in a jailbreak because they are now looking for, like, suitable vessels, bodies to possess. And if they possess the wrong body, they'll just become mindless zombies. But if they possess the right body that is, like, a suitable vessel for them, they are able to, like, fully use, like, their powers and stuff. So she is an exceptional vessel because she has a really strong soul. And so she's targeted by spirits. but. Someone comes to her rescue, Kai Iode, who introduces himself as a Wallycon gentleman, but uh, is really like a agent from Hades, from the agency Arkham Bullet. He's like Ghost Reaper. He, you know, comes to like the physical world to exterminate the escaped spirits who broke out of the jail. And so he protects Chloe and eventually there's this thing about like he he's actually a really big fan of Chloe because he watched Ghost Reaper Girl and so he's really excited to meet her and stuff but also like she is an exceptional vessel so he also wants to possess her and eventually after a few encounters with some spirits like she does decide to let him possess her like he she comes back to his rescue actually when he's like kind of being defeated by the spirits and then like a says that hey you can you can possess me and so they combine their souls into wood and she becomes like a real life ghost reaper girl kai becomes basically a site that she can use and they fight off now all these spirits possessing people and she's actually really great at fighting because of her background as you know formerly kind of a street punk 
from like the slums who kind of wanted to you know live a better life like be more known and well-known and respected and so that's why she pursued the life of an actress but like her now her battle experience like has proven very very useful in fighting off these spirits so it looks like they'll be working together kai has formed a contract with chloe and he wants to help her you know, not only will they, you know, exercise all these spirits, but he wants to help her, like, reach her full potential and make her worldwide famous. And society to notice and appreciate her. So, this was, I really, there was some problematic elements to this, obviously, with Kai being introduced with this Wallycon fetish idea. But at the same time, I just, I really enjoy Chloe. I, I really like what the series is setting up that it's about. Like, it's about... A, it's a short and action manga about an older woman protagonist that celebrates that she is a powerful, strong, you know, physically capable fighter. And it's about her actually doing the action. It's about her journey in being like respected and coming up in society and people acknowledging like that she is like special and valued and making her feel valued. And I really, really like that premise. I really am here for her character and her character arc. And I think that if they can tone down like this idea that Kai like is like some sort of Wally Kong, like he has an interest in young looking character, young looking women and stuff like then that relationship also between Kai and her could be really interesting because he is, you know, interestingly supportive. He does want to help her seemingly. I'm sure he has, you know, maybe some secret intentions that could get explored later on as well. So that could be an interesting push and pull. But there is also just an interesting idea in terms of power dynamics in this series too. Mm -hmm. I mean, and even though the series does play upon like you know, sexual assault subtext in, like, the spirits trying to possess Chloe and stuff is never exploitative in how it is presented. Like, even in Chloe's transformation, like, she is not, like, sexually fetishized in any way. There's not a fan service to speak of. No framing that is meant to specifically emphasize parts of her body. Like, it's incredibly respectful of her as a character and protagonist. And that is just such a relief that we can have, like, a really great female protagonist without the caveat of fan service. So I'm also really, really happy about that, too. So I am actually extremely excited for the series, especially, you know, in terms of a protagonist. I think Chloe is the most of excited I've been for a protagonist of a, a new jump story in quite a bit, maybe since K from Octodge. Mm-hmm. That's that's some uh, that's some high praise there. Um, yeah, I I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, I guess this is running on Jump Plus in Japan, which I think would explain a little bit because uh, th- this this does feel like a more I don't know if mature is the right word, but this does ha- have like a level of maturity I I normally wouldn't expect in like. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's really the right way to put it. I don't know. This this didn't come off to me as like something I would find in Shonen Jump. It does feel like it's used a little bit older yeah, than yeah. what we normally expect of the jump demographic. Not that I couldn't believe that this would run in the main jump, especially with, you know, some recent stuff that gets published there like Chainsaw Man. But at the same time, you know, considering like some of the other Jump Plus stuff we've read recently, this definitely f- is feels more akin to stuff like like Hell's Paradise in tone. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I meant to say. Um 
and yeah, I uh, I don't know. I I just I just thought this was really entertaining. Again, I I was very kind of like I, I was I was holding up my guard on some of the sexual assault stuff. Like, oh, where's this gonna go? But I think you're right. It's not too like exploitative, which I think is good. Um, especially, I mean, I mean, I guess I haven't really like read the manga for it, but like considering you know this is from the same person that did like Rosario and Vampire. Um, which I don't know if it was like, I guess I don't really remember the level of exploitativeness that was in that series, but I, I mean, it's, it was a pervy, etchy, like comedy series, you know? So I, I am kind of surprised that, uh, you know, that stuff, uh, wasn't meant to, wasn't there to exploit our, our main character, which is, which uh, again, I'm, I'm glad for. I think the series is very pointedly about this idea of bodily autonomy and power. Mm-hmm. Like, she makes a consensual agreement with Kai to merge bodies and to combine their powers to become Ghost Reaper Girl, as opposed to these other spirits who are trying to force themselves upon her. I think that this is all very intentional subtext that the series is trying to get across. And I think that because it's doing it respectfully, it's like framing these encounters as like, you know, bad. It's like not trying to have it taken into by also employing fan service to sexualize Chloe. I think that is going to work in its favor in terms of delivering on that promise of those games. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, that, that, that'll be, that'll be interesting to see if that gets explored any further um i i love how kai turns into a cartoony ass scythe uh that was the best part <laughs> yeah it, i that was really fun like it is such a cartoony design too i, I just really looks so that. dopey <laughs> and i love it oh man uh i thought that was really good um yeah no in general i i thought this was just a, a really good first chapter i i think um and I'm I'm not I'm not this is not me saying they're necessarily the exact same thing because they're not, but the dynamic of like a human character using a supernatural being's powers as their own kind of reminded me of a bone collection a little bit. Mm, yeah. I mean this is a much better take on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh a much better take and again one that I think clearly skews in the direction of like an older audience for sure. Um, and yeah, I, I, this, this was just a nice surprise in general. Like I, 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 like the first time I had heard about this coming out was from the official Shonen Jump Twitter, um, which, you know, if this is from Jump Plus, I'm, I'm really surprised to see that, uh, Viz picked up something from Jump Plus, uh, just considering that, you know, it, it took him a little bit to get the Spy Family only because like the Spy Family was doing so well, like over in Japan and on manga plus that i'm pretty sure they were just like we gotta pick this up um yeah they pretty much swiped it away from manga plus (laughs) who were originally doing the translation i think they probably were faster on the draw with this one because it is from the creator of rosarium vampire and that is a fairly popular series so yeah yeah i think they the author's reputation and pedigree encouraged them to pick this up right off the back i'm really glad they did oh yeah for sure yeah, uh, I'm 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 glad they've been picking up. I'm glad they picked this up from Jump Plus because I've been I've been kind of wondering like whether they were going to do the same thing on like Manga Plus, which is for, I mean on the Spanish side I think they have, but they haven't really been doing so on the English side, which has been 
um, a little disappointing, but I'm sure we'll get more on there soon, hopefully. But yeah, I'm 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 just I'm just happy to read more Jump Plus stuff because I think in general they they seem to have I think some, sometimes more interesting stuff than what we get from Jump because I I have to be honest like I, I I love covering Jump starts and everything but it does like very rarely am I like so uh, am I so ready for a new series like from from the beginning uh, it's it's a very rare feeling that happens um, like. Promise Neverland, My Hero Academia, Act Actage, like th- those were all things that like I was pretty ready to read like from the start, and that like had me hooked pretty instantly. Which I I, I mean I'm I'm not saying that you know I, I understand that th- that's just the kind of thing that doesn't really happen a lot, but uh, I'm just saying Jump Plus for me has a I think has a better hit rate for me just generally speaking. Yeah, I mean at least the stuff that is getting translated and put out. Yeah. I think have all been really excellent. So I've been very happy with whatever we got a new gem plus simulpub. Oh yeah, for sure. But uh yeah, um it looks like this is gonna be running bi weekly, I think. And uh for anyone who wants to read it, um it thankfully this is available on the actual Shonen Jump app. Um I was I was surprised to see again from someone who's known for something like Rosarian Vampire, I'm kind of surprised that uh, they didn't just make this like a web-only series. But I'm hoping that means that like there won't be too much gratuitous fan service going forward. I don't, I don't think that'll be the case. Yeah, I mean there was none in this first chapter, so I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's available on the Shonen Jump app, and of course on the Shonen Jump website at shonenjump.com. Yeah. And I just want to say, just to address this, I'm really annoyed with everyone complaining about it being read left to right. Like, that is the author's intention. They have designed the comic to be read this way. Get over yourself. Read. <laughs> this is normal. You know, where, whatever format you want to read comics, that's normal. If it's the author's intention, that's normal. Just get over your manga reading bubble. Comics don't only have to be read right to left. Yeah, I guess we didn't really talk too much about that. Like, I, I had seen some people who who didn't agree with it just because it, like, didn't really, it didn't really mesh with the flow of the story or the art or whatever. And I don't know, I, I, I was, I was very surprised to see that at first, but like, I don't know, I, I didn't really have that hard of a time reading it, personally speaking. I don't, again, I don't really know about anybody else, but I don't know. Me neither. I mean, again, this is the author's intent. They have drawn the comic with the intention of having at least international readers read it this way. And you should respect those intentions. Like, maybe they'll change it on the line. Maybe not. I don't know. But I think there is a reason why they decided to do it this way. And just enjoy the comic. Again, it does not matter what format it is if it's the author's own intention. Mm. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. I I don't know. That's, that's that's interesting to me to hear that so many people are like against that because I mean, uh, I was I was surprised, but I I don't think I was like I don't think I was like totally against it. Like, yeah, just don't read the comments <laughs> on the page of the first chapter. Look, as long as the art flows well and I can I can still like read what's going on, I I don't really care personally. You know, as, as as long as as long as it doesn't interrupt the flow of the art or like uh, totally work against it from here on out, I th- th- we we should be fine. You know, 
Like it's like what I'm saying, get over yourselves. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I'm I'm definitely gonna be reading more of this. You know, like I said, it's on Shut and Jump app, shutandjump.com. We'll leave links to it in the show notes. I'm I'm pretty sure this is also on Manga Plus, obviously. So like, you know, for for anyone who's not living in North America or wherever, you know, uh basically living anywhere that Viz isn't available, it's on the Manga Plus app. And there you go. All right, but uh, we have one more simulpub that we need to talk about uh, from Denpa, of all people, um, from Romi Oishi, or Dr. Peep, I guess, and and, and Mesh. Meshi? That's how you pronounce that, maybe. Um, entitled Lockdown Zone Level X. And uh, I, I couldn't really find a lot of info on this, because obviously this is, this is a newer series, but uh, I think this originally... Uh, in Japan, it runs online as like a web comic, which is interesting. From uh, Futabasha and uh, Web Action Comics, I believe it's called. Um, right now, you can uh, you can actually read this on Denpa's uh, online reader at denpa.pub. The first chapter is free for anybody to read. The first two chapters are going to be free, they said, but chapters from then on are going to you know cost probably like a dollar or something. Like a dollar, dollar ninety nine, yeah, something like that. Probably within that price range. I don't really know like how often this series will release just yet, but I guess we'll we'll have to see. Um, but for now, uh, Lum, why don't you why don't you run down what Lockdown Zone is all about? Lockdown Zone is about this girl who is kind of trapped in her room in like you know her building complex. She gets texts from her mom uh, who says, "Hey, don't go outside." I mean, while she was sleeping, she got like twenty four missed calls, and so she texts her mom and she's like, "Going, uh, what's up?" And like her mom says, "Oh, Sai is at our building," and she's like, "What the hell, Sai?" Well, it's written X, but it's pronounced Sai, and basically, Sai is just this big tentacle monster. Apparently, it's like trying to breed or something like basically her mom is telling her hey don't open the door don't open your curtains or do anything because like this monster will attack you if it knows you're there if it sees you so at first she doesn't believe her so she opens the curtain and the monster kills her but then she wakes up in her bed again and then she's like wait what happened was that a dream but no she gets like the same uh, messages and she's like oh my god so I know what's happening now and then she finds out that her classmate Shuhei who she had kind of like uh you know she was friends with but then they had kind of drifted apart a bit in middle school but like there's still some affection that she has for him but basically he's still in the building as well and so uh, he, she starts like texting uh, Shuhei or gets in contact with Shuhei but then like the problem is, like, it says that the the monster can, like, take over people. So, like, there's this paranoia about, like, oh, my God, did Shuei get taken over? Is he infested? Do I have to kill him? It doesn't look like that at, at the end of the first chapter. But then, like, of course, the monster kills him and then kills her. And then she wakes up in the bed again. So, basically, this is, like, another time loop kind of story in, like, this locked room uh closed space setting and it's kind of interesting like 
because there's so many obstacles to her like trying to get out she has like so many limited forms of communication uh in terms of people to help her interact with so i mean the manga begins with like a cold open where she like manages to make it to the hallway and get in an elevator before she gets killed again presumably by a version of Shuei that gets, like, taken over uh, by the monster and, like, attacking her because, like, a hand is, like, reaching out from under the elevator floor and attacks her. So it's kind of interesting to see how things will get to that point. But, yeah, I, I think the premise of this, of, like, this, you know, another time loop kind of character dies when they get killed and they have to figure a way out of the situation. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. I think it's really, really uh, got a good first chapter, a good hook to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really enjoyed this. Um, I really thought the, like, kind of horror element was done really well here, um, especially with parts, like, at the very beginning when, like, you know, she opens the curtain and she sees this wriggly, tentacled monster out, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, she'll, uh, w- one of the, like, tentacle mouth things, like, comes in and, like, just eats her face off. Oh, yeah. Was, that was, like, oh, man. brutal. Um, just, just in general, I, I liked a lot of the suspense, um, done here with the first chapter, especially, uh, kind of near the end where it's like, oh, no, uh, this thing might have taken over my friend Shuhei. I'm probably gonna have to kill him. And at, at first, I thought what happened was, um, because they're really building up how, like, Shuhei's running over to the apartment, and, like, he's at the door, and, like, her heart's racing, like, as she opens the door, and, like, what I what I thought happened at first was that, like, she, like, accidentally, like, stabbed Shuhei as he, like, hugged her, um, but, wow, what happens to him is so much worse than I what I thought was gonna happen. It was kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, the manga really built up the suspense uh, very well, so that, that- when what happened happened like it was so shocking there are a lot of little details in this chapter that are also interesting like her like ryoko's dad is in the defense force and his theory is that uh sai this uh creature is perhaps from like a not another world maybe it's an underground creature uh, and then like there's this moment in the flashback that is kind of understated but like probably going to be very relevant is that like in the flashback to Ryoko and Shuei in the 8th grade there is this girl like they are trying to pick up who are going to be the you know class representatives and they're like saying okay she was going to be the male representative who's going to be a female representative and then like there's this girl you know with glasses uh, who is like kind of timidly raising her hand but then you know Ryoka gets uh called on instead and it's like okay so this character who got like kind of jilted here is probably gonna get gonna be relevant i'm sure in some way so that's another thing to look forward to i think uh i think like if i had any like uh reservations is that i'm concerned about like exploitative energy because like uh when the monster first attacks ryoka and we like see kind of like the big full page thread of like the tentacles all coiling around her like there are tentacles like going up her skirt and wrapped around her legs and stuff and it's like did we kind of need this like implication and also like the implication that like this monster is looking to like breed by spreading its seed or whatever that makes me worried about the directions that could take like this chapter is not the most exploitative thing in the world and uh there isn't really any fan service but it does give me pause that it's like 
Uh, oh no. There's there that potential, yeah. Elements. Especially, okay, so like it has, the monster has a flower spike and it shoots seeds to breed. So I'm worried about like, I mean, that could be just an element of like, maybe that's like, it has projectile weapons that it can use to kill things. So, but I mean. Maybe maybe it has bullet seed. Yeah. And so I'm kind of hoping for that other than like more like sexually like inappropriate implications. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of interesting elements and mysteries behind this like you know is the situation what it seems in terms of like her mother contacting her and like the setup of like this monster around their apartment complex and how it's really only her and shuei in this building like it feels like there's even more going on here than like what is being told to the characters so I think that's really interesting. Like, it has a really good hook. I'm definitely curious about this mystery. And, uh, yeah, I think it executes, like, its horror elements really well. Oh, yeah. Um, one thing I noticed about, like, the art, especially the backgrounds, is I it, it really feels like in some shots, it feels like it feels like the artist, like, literally just used, like, actual photos, and then they just drew the characters on top of the photos. I wouldn't be surprised surprised for some that some of the backgrounds are just like photos they adapted like that is a trick that uh artists use sometimes so uh because otherwise like a lot of the backgrounds are pretty sparse in like her room and stuff like but yeah i mean if you're if you look at like the scenes where like they're walking through the city especially like i think those are definitely photos i mean you look and you see the people in there like those are those are just photos of people oh okay like yeah, so those are those are definitely photos, yeah. Okay, yeah, because like if uh, that that like kind of caught my eye, I was like, man, if these are these are drawings, these are really these are pretty damn good. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, this is I I thought that was really interesting. I don't really I've never like seen that in manga before. Um, I mean, I'm sure maybe it's been done before, but like it's the first time I've seen something like that. Um, I just really like that detail. But uh, yeah, in general, like again, I um there's there's really not much else to go on with this first chapter it's pretty i mean straightforward probably isn't the right word because there's not a lot there's not a lot that we like know yet but like i think this first chapter was a good enough hook like i definitely want to read more of this yeah i think it's a good setup it sets a lot of little seeds that can be extrapolated on further as the mystery unwinds and again it like has this cool like kind of a locked room closed space setup that she has to kind of escape from you know she because like every mistake brings her back to the starting point has to start all over again so i'm curious of like what iteration gets her even to that elevator that we see her in the cold open or for all we know that that could have been that that might not even mean anything uh that, that could have just been another attempt uh of her failed escape you know, yeah. uh, but I guess we, we don't really know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure maybe that'll, that's probably like where we're going, but that, that's, that's kind of the thing. We don't really, we don't really know yet. And I, I kind of like that, that, you know, it's not super obvious. Like I, I don't know, like I'm, I'm really just interested in learning like what's going on here. I really like this, this like horror take on like the, uh, on like the groundhog day kind of scenario almost. Um, yeah. But um, I guess other than that, really, the only other thing I kind of wanted to point out, because, uh, you know, uh, obviously, we like we said, this is available on uh, Denpa's online reader. And uh, I I just I just really want to give a shout out to Denpa and like 
how like amazing their user settings are. Um, I don't know if you looked. I don't know if you looked into them, but uh, you know s- something that like I always have an issue with with some like online manga readers or just comic readers in general is that uh, you know like. Uh, I, I very much judge readers on, like, how well I can read two-page spreads. Because, like, say, for example, you have you have the Viz and the Shonen Jump app where, like, you can you can basically turn your phone vertically, uh, or I guess horizontally, is it? I always get the two confused. Uh, you, you can turn your phone, like, horizontally, and, like, obviously, if you turn your phone a certain way, you can, you can actually read two-page spreads, like, as they were meant to be seen. But, like, other services don't really, like, allow for that. Like, um, I think I looked into this, and I, I might have been corrected, I'm not sure. But, like, on, like, the Comixology app, right? Like, you know, when I read manga on there, I can't really do the same thing. Like, if I want to see a whole spread, I can't really do that on my phone. But, like, I can do that on, like, the on like the browser reader. The, the settings on Dempa allow for allow for you to, like, read their manga in a way where it's, like, you can basically read manga in a way where, like, you can read, like, you can read, like, single pages, and then, like, when a spread comes up, it'll automatically just turn into that spread. Like, you don't, you don't have to read spreads, like, one page at a time. Yeah, the spreads are just one page, so they don't split it up. So, yeah, when you're just, like, just scrolling through it, like, it just shows up as the proper full image. So that is really nice. And and it and it even does that on um because I, I I tried both on my like web browser like on my desktop and on my phone it does that on my phone too which is pretty cool um so I like how specific the page display settings are on Denpa I I kind of wish more manga readers would have that honestly um because again I I like I like being able to f- uh to to view two page spreads as actual like full spreads you know. But uh, yeah, I just I just wanted the shout out Denpa for that uh, for that sort of like specific user ability that like I I, I really look for in like other manga readers. But uh, yeah, otherwise, yeah, I, I think I can give uh, Lockdown Zone Level X a solid two thumbs up. I definitely like this. Yeah, I also agree. I highly recommend it. I'm very interested in it, and I hope to continue reading it. Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, another two tones up for me and no heads off. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, that's that's going to about do it for every all the simul pubs and and titles in general we wanted to talk about. Again, we'll uh, we'll leave links in the show notes for where you can uh, read everything we talked about here. Um, and please definitely go uh, check out everything we talked about on this episode. Uh I th- I, th- I think in general we we pretty much liked a lot of what we talked about here, a uh, lot lot a lot of positive feedback on our end I think. But uh, yeah, I think uh, with all that out of the way, uh, we're kind of getting near the end of the show. But before that, uh, Lum, uh, I know we didn't do this last time because our episode ran kind of long, but this time I think we're going to do community shoutouts. Yes, indeed. And first, I want to shout out a video that I collaborated on with Wednesday Vale to discuss Yui Kamio Let's Loose. It's a very interesting video because Wednesday Dale and I had kind of different interpretations and opinions on Yui Kamio. But I think that's what makes it interesting is that you get kind of the duality of uh, perspectives on Yui Kamio. I was approaching it from kind of a more optimistic kind of 
uh, reading of the series. Wensley Dale had a little more cynical reading, but I think that both of our like observations uh, were, you know, well reasoned. I think that you can definitely see it both ways. I mean, the series definitely is open to interpretation that way because there are some things it does really, really well, some things it kind of has mixed messages about and I think that's fair I think the only point of Wensleydale's that I was like a little bit hmm, I don't know if I can fully get behind this is his reading of the ending which was I think a little too cynical about like Yui's choice at the end of the series of like what that implies but overall I think that it was really cool to have like two different distinct perspectives on the series uh, and Overall, I think it was a it was a good analysis of its strengths and weaknesses overall. Uh, speaking of Shonen Jump stuff, I want to highlight two uh, articles from Daniel Dockery. One was when One Piece recently had its 23rd anniversary earlier last month. Dan wrote an article basically describing kind of what the series means to him and like kind of like the stories of like his experiences as a fan, but also like the people he's met because of it, you know, shout outs to Grant and Steve Yurko and Maddie among other people. And basically, yeah, it's just like a tribute to the series and like how it has meant a lot of things to him over the years. And in addition, he also wrote an article about Black Clover and how Black Clover is kind of like the ace of Black Clover's sleeve. Uh, I mean, Noelle is kind of like the ace of Black Clover's sleeve. Because as a character, you know, Alice is the main character, but Noelle has a really compelling character arc. And basically he goes over like what makes her character arc really interesting in terms of like how she ties into the classes and themes of Black Clover, how she ties into the themes of like using your power and showing that you are more than what other people say you are, even like going to like what makes the kind of uh romantic tension between her and Asta kind of interesting and relevant in terms of those scenes and in that context and yeah I really like kind of the sentiment that Dan kind of left off on with this article like Asta may want to become the wizard good but Noel will change the world I thought that was a, a really cool line I think it, it is appropriate because of what Noel's uh role in the story and kind of position in the story can accomplish uh, in terms of other jump stuff, uh, from a and in particular, like there was an article from Matthew Rowe on the Lost 2007 JoJo's Phantom Blood film. I think the article kind of front loads itself a little unnecessarily with trying to justify JoJo as kind of, you know, so influential and important, which it is, but I think it's like maybe overemphasizing it to say like it's m- more important than even stuff like Dragon Ball or whatever but even even so I think that the article is a really good kind of exploration of the history of that uh, long lost 2007 film when put into context of like JoJo's as a series and then like trying to dig and unearth like information about it where it fell off and how the reaction was why it could have possibly been canned and then the attempts to kind of research and try to find footage from it and like the full feature so yeah i think that it was a really good kind of overview of like the production history of that film from what we know and then kind of ties it into like the larger context of jojo bizarre adventures like history as a franchise in a really nice way too then, in terms of other history lessons, and kind of moving away from a series specifically, 
I want to highlight the History of Japan podcast, uh, mini-series on the history of blackness in Japan, which is a podcast that explores basically the history of Japan's kind of interactions with black people and black culture, kind of really historically going into like the first encounters of uh, Japan with black people and uh, African people and like kind of how... A lot of, you know, interactions with uh, Western cultures and colonial cultures in particular shaped kind of their understanding of, you know, black uh, people in Japan. Also, the podcast digs into a lot about how doctrines of colonialism, white supremacy affected kind of Japan's views and thinking running a race and then how they recontextualize that. And they're like saying, oh, no, but we in Japan are like... Uh, like, it's kind of interesting to look at that political social context and then how that played a part in, like, especially in the world wars. And uh, it's also kind of interesting to see, like, kind of how Japan uh, just broadly and culturally kind of saw itself in relationship to African people. But also, like, in Japan, like, how like African people would be treated differently or even in some cases more respectfully than they would be treated back home, particularly like black soldiers. Uh, in World War II and after occupation, Japan were treated much better in Japan than they would be, you know, back home in America. So it's kind of interesting, just general overview about the history of Japan's like understanding of race and interactions with black people and black culture. And I thought that was a really interesting history lesson, especially like as we talk about this idea of like depiction of you know people of color in anime and representation in anime it's kind of interesting to look back at kind of like the history of like what popular culture and what like actual interactions in japan were with other cultures and people of color from other cultures so i think that is really valuable historical insight I also want to shout out uh, Black Girls Anime's new kind of retooled website. They've done like a new Black Girls Anime like kind of news site that now is hosting a bunch of really cool features and reviews and stuff. And like I thought one of the really interesting articles was kind of uh, an exploration of nerdless, which is kind of burlesque shows that are kind of also integrating elements of cosplay. It's, you know, people dressing up as characters from anime and stuff. And it also kind of highlights a lot of the black uh, cosplayers, black burlesque performers on the scene, which I thought was really nice and cool. And yeah, there are also just a lot of other nice articles like practicing self-care when anime, like kind of just a personal article about like how anime has helped uh, the writer of that article, Jessica Jackson's, you know, difficult times in their life, you know, just the distress and just ways in which it, it helps doing that. And then there's a review of Bloody Monday, uh, the manga on there, and then like a list of like, you know, characters, of eight badass black female characters that... Uh, the author, Kiara Manning, really responded to. So, like, a lot of really cool articles are on the site right now, and I'm looking forward to more in the future. Speaking of things that I always look forward to, uh, Noir Caesar, Jack Cattrall, they released a really good video recently about the psychology behind fans forget one big thing in anime. I'll spoil what that one big thing is, because that 
is basically a lot of anime fans seem to forget that most anime star and feature children and have unrealistic expectations for how said children behave in stories and don't really give them credit or show them much kindness for like their emotional struggles because in a lot of anime like a lot of characters are basically forced into situations as children into you know life or death situations that force them to like basically grow up or it's like Jack Twistly calls in this video, like a lot of characters are basically child soldiers, you know, forced into life or death battles. And so, you know, you got to cut them a break when they are like being indecisive or like being very emotional or making like very uh, rash decisions because you got to think, hey, when you were a kid, would you handle these situations any more maturely or uh, delicately? I think one uh, example that they highlighted that I especially appreciated was like Kagome from Inuyasha and how she handled like her whole situation of you know being traveled back to time getting into this conflict that she had to help stop about you know seeking all of the GTO and jewelry shards but also like kind of the really messy love triangle she was in with Inuyasha and Kiku and stuff and then like how she kind of you know, of of course, at first she was very immature about it, but she like matured over the course of the story and like handled it really, really well in a way that a lot of adults wouldn't. So I think that I really appreciated that in particular. So I thought that was a really, really great uh, analysis video. I also want to highlight uh, Dr. Stagio's vlogs and uh, the recent like music video for the weekend. Dr. Stagio is a studio founded by like American uh, animators in Japan. Uh, Henry Turrell and Artel Izam are like the main two guys there and they have gotten a lot of attention recently as like you know they were a studio founded by Artel Izam who is a you know black animator he's and he specializes in like layout background painting and stuff but yeah like he founded the studio so they got a lot of attention recently especially after the weekend video that they made come out which is really beautifully animated really really cool so gotta definitely check that out like it kind of basically it's like a fantasy reimagining that sort of is based on things in the weekend's life and like his kind of lore he's kind of put out for himself it's just a really cool concept video and uh they i really have enjoyed their blocks for a, a sh real long time there's a a good like general like advice like vlogs about like getting into the animation industry and like kind of the creative process but they also have like topical like vlogs where they do talk about like very culturally important conversations like the concept of you know how race is depicted in anime like about the casting conversation about like voice actors and you know the need to appropriately cast characters and even about their own, like, reputation they have garnered as the first Black-owned anime studio and, like, their feelings on that. So I really appreciate their vlogs a lot. I appreciate the, their work a lot. Like, I kind of first gleamed onto them, found out about them last year when they did the Sound and Fury panel in New York Comic Con. And I saw them in person there and then uh, got into their work because I really like Sound and Fury a lot. But yeah, so they're a really cool studio. They did a really cool music video recently and have done really cool vlogs. So I definitely want to shout them out. Like, they're really cool people. And uh, I've also been really enjoying in terms of other YouTube stuff. Uh, so Matt Pat, of course, of Game Theory and Film Theory fame, has set up a new YouTube channel called Food Theory. And a lot of people have, like... 
been trying out that uh, thumbnail out of context of like him saying, "Oh, here's a pizza. Is this a, this is a sandwich?" So uh, I guess I actually watched the video, and it's like he's not arguing a pizza is a sandwich. He's actually saying that under some like legal definitions, uh, particularly by like tax people like they will they will classify a pizza as a sandwich even though it makes no sense to do that so that i thought that was actually a really interesting video but in general you know i'm always interested in food and learning more about food and i actually thought like several of the videos on this channel were actually really interesting and well researched like uh someone who eats a lot of us food like the video on like fries and like which uh restaurants you know, ha- give you the most bang for your buck with the fries. It was really fascinating because they basically like bought a bunch of different sized fries from all the big major chains and they measured them in terms of like pounds of uh, what you got in the fries and then how the space of the packaging was, you know, used and what it was economically used. And they found that a lot of times, especially with like cardboard cases, you know, the fries are not packaged very well because there are like spaces in between that prevent the full amount of space being used. And this is especially a problem with like uh, curly fries and stuff. So I thought that was very, very interesting. Basically, their conclusion, if you're wondering, is that the number one fry was uh, Wendy's large fries. So as someone who had a lot of Wendy's uh, for a long time, like, I definitely would agree. I definitely feel that was the most bang for the buck. So that was very interesting. And a lot of the other videos were very interesting. I think, you know, the grocery store one was uh, particularly uh, good inside the psychology behind why grocery stores stock their shelves the way they do. So I like that a lot. And then moving back into the kind of animation, anime related space, or specifically animation, uh, the, these last two ones, but, uh, Canopy Effects video, uh, breaking down Avatar's incredible animation, specifically highlighting the Korean studios, uh, responsible for the animation in Avatar and going over like their contributions and like really how it was because the creative teams vote on the, Nickelodeon side and both on the you know Korean side the animation studio side like because they had so much trust in each other because the creators put so much effort into facilitating like clear lines of communication and building relationships of trust and like uh, making sure that everyone is on the same page that is why and how the series was able to be animated and move so beautifully and as well as it did so I definitely think that was a really awesomely researched video uh, really interesting insights into how the animation of that show was executed and the personality they were able to like uh infuse and show because they understood the characters and designed the characters to uh move as intended like i really really uh, appreciated that video and then finally you know there's a recent announcement that made everyone very mad about a show getting rebooted that definitely should not have been rebooted and in the response to that there has been a really cool hashtag going around on twitter called a better cartoon hashtag and it's basically a bunch of really awesome animators sharing like their pitch ideas for shows they want to make and it's really a lot of cool concept art and really cool ideas that i just want to share because a lot of it is is really really awesome and interesting it's like some beautiful ideas and art of like shows that I don't know if a lot of these will ever get made, but like it'd be really cool if they did because a lot of people are so creative and they've come up with some really awesome ideas. So yeah, definitely look through that if you want some inspiration and want to see some really, really cool art and uh, story concepts and stuff. 
And yeah, those are my shout outs for this time. And uh, yeah, definitely a lot of cool things for folks to check out. All right. But uh, yeah, definitely go check all those out. We'll uh, obviously we'll have links to everything we talked about in the show notes. Uh, a lot of stuff this week, but again, we we went on so long last time that uh, you know we uh, we we kind of decided to forego community shoutouts last week. So we, we we had a lot building up up to this week on the podcast. So there you go. And uh, I think that's about going to do us here for this episode. We are finally at the end of the show. Um, not really much to say before we round out. Um, we're, we're constantly, uh, trying to plan out, you know, future episodes and whatnot. We're always getting stuff ready in the background. We, we have some ideas as to like, you know, what we want to record about in the future, but, uh, nothing concrete yet. Um, obviously we will be talking about those new jump series when they're all out. Uh, and so, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's really going to be about it. We'll, uh. You know, well, we we have some cool episodes coming up, and uh, you know, we'll 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 keep you updated on uh, what's coming up. But until then, uh, we're just gonna plug all of our stuff. Starting with my good friend Lum. Where can the people find you? You can find me at Lum Romeo on Twitter and Lum Romeo on a variety of places like Amateur Revelation and List Roader. It's Lum Romeo. That's where you can find me. You can read my articles, reviews over on all com, And we got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out. So definitely look forward to more on there. And you can also find on there all the related podcasts to the show that I edit and host, including Lum Squad and Manga and Movies. So yeah, look forward to a lot of those on there. And also, if you like the art I do for this show, you can follow my Instagram at SidArtWorks. As for me, I'm Colton. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and edit a few other podcasts on the side here besides this one, uh, which you could find links to over at my personal blog at ColtonCorner.wordpress.com. That's where you can find the page dedicated to, again, whatever other podcasts i'm doing at the moment and then yeah i guess as for this podcast uh you can find every episode of the manga mavericks podcast over at all-comic.com that's where we post every episode first unless you are a subscriber to our patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks where if you sign up for say the two dollar tier uh you will get access to uh early editions of the podcast uh depending on when we have them edited uh, if we happen to have them edited before they're supposed to come out on the main feed. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I think we got a few early podcasts coming up, possibly. So, you know, if you're already a subscriber to the $2 tier, uh, be on the lookout for those. Um, and so, yeah, uh, in general, that's the best way to kind of listen to our podcast early uh, if you, uh, if you, if you so wish to, uh, or if you want completely new content, you want to sign up for the $5 tier, uh, where we basically upload a new fresh bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, at this point we have hours and hours of bonus content. I think I calculated this, uh, a little bit ago and I think we have about, I want to say close to 17 hours worth of bonus content on our Patreon alone. So if you sign up for the $5 tier, uh, you get access to that. And again, more, because again, we literally upload a new podcast at the end of every month. Uh, right now, we are doing a mini series of podcasts known as the Manga Mavericks Book Club, where we talk about different manga that we may have talked about on the show before, but we kind of go back to and cover a little more in depth, volume by volume. Right now, we are covering uh, Masami Kurumada's Saint Seiya Manga, 
again, we did an episode about that, but uh, I didn't get to be on for various reasons, scheduling and whatnot. And so now I'm doing a 100% blind read through of that series, along with my friend, Doctor, from the Ask Backwards Anime podcast. As of the latest bonus podcast, we're about eight volumes in. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun reading that series. And if you basically want to hear Doc and I uh, fumble through Saint Seiya and wonder what the hell's going on, uh, that is at the $5 tier, again, at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. That's really the best way to support us in the show and what we do here. So if you really, really, really want to support us, again, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. We really appreciate any support we get. As for all comic and everything else, though, you can follow us on facebook.com slash alt.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks in particular, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks for, uh, for excerpts of our podcast and maybe some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, you can email us anything about manga or the podcast. Uh, you know, what did you think about some of the news stories we covered on this episode? Uh, what are some of your thoughts on, on all the latest Simul pubs happening? Um, any, any manga that you're reading that you want to tell us about or, uh, any manga you want us to cover on the show? Uh, email us about any of those things and we will read them on the show. We love getting emails. Again, that's at manga mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're available on so many other platforms like that and uh, Spotify and SoundCloud, uh, wherever you can listen to podcasts. And so, yeah, I mean, really, especially on Apple Podcasts, if you listen to us on there, uh, those ratings and reviews really help the visibility of our show and just help us get out there to more listeners. And just in general, we appreciate all the feedback you leave us uh, on our show. Uh, So go do that if you have the time or you so wish. And uh, that's going to be about it for this episode. Again, another long one. But uh, hey, uh, I'm sure you enjoyed it. Um, And so, yeah, this has been episode 130 of the Manga Mavericks podcast at allcomic.com. And we will see you guys next time for episode 131. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.